Alright, good evening everybody. Welcome to class number 9 of The Lost Road. We are almost at the end of The Lost Road. In fact, I want to start with that a little bit, kind of talking about where we're headed in the immediate future and soon after that and uh, slightly bigger picture and all that. Some uh, larger Mythgard Academy series uh, uh, kind of housekeeping here. First though, a quick reminder, um, don't forget... Uh, Midmoot is coming up soon, the Mythgard Speculative Fiction Symposium, which is happening at the University of Maryland on the weekend of September 24th. Uh, I hope that you'll be able to join us. And a bunch of you, I've seen a bunch of your, uh, a bunch of names I'm used to seeing here in the attendee list uh, already come across and register. That's great. I know several of you are giving are giving uh, presentations, which is really cool. So uh, I, I hope you'll be able to uh, uh, to, to join us. Um, we'll be, uh, you know, so there's still three weeks left, but uh, but yeah, we've got a we've got a good crowd so far. With still more than three weeks of registration left, we already have um, almost pretty close to as many as we had last year, actually. So it should be uh, should be bigger. Uh, anyway, so I, which means even more fun, and of course, and it's going to be longer. It's going to be a day and a half instead of just the instead of just the one day. So. Um, all right, but I just want to make sure to remind you about that now. Upcoming plans. Okay, so the next book that we are doing after The Lost Road, um, as you may remember from the election, is Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, a sci-fi classic in the sort of uh, utopia, dystopia genre, uh, or sort of subgenre of science fiction. Uh, should be really good. I've never done... Um, I've only taught Ursula Le Guin once uh, in my modern fantasy class. We did Earth, uh, uh, the, the Earthsea um, uh, back then, but I have never uh, taught any other book. I, I will admit this is a book I had never read before. I'd missed this one, um, as I have many classics of science fiction. Um, so I've, I've read it now. I've read it recently since it was elected. Um, and... Um, and I'm excited uh, to teach it. So this is going to be another one like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which I'm going to be going through. And, you know, so as we teach it, it's it's new to me. This is the, this will be me discovering a book with you guys. Uh, so that should be a lot of fun. So uh, you join me for The Dispossessed. Um, uh, the, so this is the web page on the Mythgard uh, uh, Institute page um, here right under the Lost Road on the Academy menu is the, Dispose- the Dispossessed page. You can see the schedule. We're going to begin on uh, the same night and time, Wednesday nights, we're going to uh, begin on September 21st. That's uh, just a couple days before Bilbo's birthday, um, and uh, and that'll be good. So we're going to st- so we're going to have uh, we're going to have a little time off, and then a very little time off, uh, and then we're going to come back on the 21st uh, to begin uh, dispossessed. We will that will go through November 9th. So we'll go through the beginning of the beginning of November. Now, one thing that you will notice, uh, careful viewers of the Dispossessed page here, will notice that there is not a registration link. Um, that's actually because I am, I, am, I am considering, in fact, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to try an experiment. Uh, and I hope that you will join me in doing this experiment. Um, I'm considering, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to sort of try out uh, some other... Uh, webinar software options. Um, uh, Mythgard and Signum have been using this one that we're using right now uh, for a long for since the day one of Mythgard and Signum actually, um, and um, 
I will. Uh, uh, so, so I'm I'm interested to kind of branch out and see. There's there are a bunch of other options on the market now, and so I might try one. And you guys are a very experienced group, so uh, uh, so uh, you know you guys can uh, uh, can sort of try it out with me. So the registration link isn't up yet. Uh, we'll get this should be up by uh, by next week. Uh, and uh, we'll see. Maybe we'll be doing uh, some experimentation uh, 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 together. So, all right. Um, so this. So so. Anyway. So that's that's what's coming. It's coming up soon. Now I've been talking about after the Lost Road and a break and everything, but I've not even we've not even really talked about the end uh, of the Lost Road. Uh, so let me let me make sure to do that. So okay, we're coming tonight. Tonight we are going to get through the end of the Quintus Silmarillion. Take it to the bank. We're getting to the end of the Quintus Omerillion tonight, um, which leaves only the etymologies, really, uh, at the end of the book. Now, I've mentioned before, uh, I'm going to uh, phone a friend for some help with the etymologies because uh, there are many people who can speak on the etymologies uh, much more knowledgeably than I and can really put, just as we've been looking at the Silmarillion, the, the Quintus Silmarillion and this other Silmarillion material, not to mention the Lost Road and the other Numenor material, sort of in the context of the development of Tolkien's thought, it's been fascinating. I've been really enjoying anyway, kind of thinking about the Silmarillion stuff and seeing what we learn about kind of where Tolkien was in his mind at this time and everything. Well, people who know his language as well can do a similar thing with the etymologies and sort of show you like what, what does this show us about about Tolkien's thought? How does this stuff relate to uh, his uh, his earlier stuff and and to the Lamas and what can we see there? Um, so uh, so as I said, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna phone a friend and the phone the friend in question is Dr. Andrew Higgins, uh, the co-editor of uh, A Secret Vice, which just uh, which was just released. He's gonna come in and help me with the etymologies now. He's not going to be able to do it at the normal time slot because he's in the UK and uh, it's 2.30 in the morning. I know Yana's going to be like, what a wuss, right? I know. But but uh, anyway, it's going to be, Yana, you'll, yes, you'll be happy, Yana. It, it will be at a Europe-friendly time, um, probably, uh, probably something like late afternoon, uh, Eastern time. Um, we're going to have, we're going to have that session that we, we haven't finalized the date for that session yet um, I'm gonna we're, I'm shooting for next week that may or may not work out oh, we'll keep you posted what what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna I'm gonna edit the webinar session that's listed on the in the you know for, for this class and I'll have it send you an email so when we have the finalized date you'll get a, an email update about the uh, the date and time uh, of that last session and then uh, Andy and I will join you then that uh, that week to talk about the etymologies um, Jan, we're not going to have a separate Q and A session, um, but certainly, if you wanted to, uh, you know, anyone who, if you, if there are still burning questions that we haven't gotten to uh, about the the other, you know, the rest of the material from this book, feel free to send me stuff, and we might be able to to sort of put some stuff in there in that last class um, alongside uh, what Andy's doing. So, uh, which means, of course, all of this means that tonight is our last regular night uh, for this class. So this will be our last Wednesday evening on the Lost Road. We'll have that one kind of floating session on the etymologies to follow. And then uh, and then we'll be, after that, moving to the Dispossessed starting Wednesday, the 21st of September at our normal uh, time here. So looking forward then a little bit, we have uh, uh, sort of stuck right in the middle of the Dispossessed class, which is going to start on September the 21st and go until November 9th, uh, we have, of course, the annual Signum fundraising campaign, which begins on Hobbit Day and goes until Halloween, as it has for the last three years. Um, And for those of you who have been around, as you know, 
Um, our MythGuard Academy class, this, you know, all of these, uh, these, these classes and videos are made open to everybody to view and to download. Um, and, uh, you know, all, all we ask is if you enjoy it, that you consider uh, supporting us. We've had wonderful support um, from all of our viewers and friends here over the years. Um, and, and so we're hoping uh, for your continued support. Um, everybody who, who votes, or excuse me, everyone who donates uh, to support our campaign, you know, to support Signum University, um, will get to be part of the electorate. To to, to and I, I've referred to that many times, of course. Um, uh, you know, for, for you, you guys will get to to, to choose uh, the books. Everyone who uh, donates at least a hundred dollars uh, to Signum University for the year um, will get uh, to be part of the nominating committee, uh, part of the Council of the Wise, uh, which chooses the nominees and the final slate uh, that gets uh, that gets voted upon then uh, to choose. Uh, to choose the the outcome um so yeah basically if our if our uh you know efforts in these free classes have you know helped to enrich your life at all uh, and you've not supported this yet i do hope that you'll continue uh continue doing so however our new electorate will not quite be in place in time to elect the next book after the dispossessed because we'll want to start right away uh so we can uh get some time in there before we get to the holidays which means the current electorate is going to have a chance to elect one more book uh the next one after ursula Le Guin, uh the the dispossessed so um um uh, Ed Powell, the uh, the White Wizard, the head of the council, uh, will be in touch uh, with you guys uh, concerning that uh, pretty soon. Okay, uh, so uh, clear on where um, on where we're uh, on where we're we're heading. James Lebeck says, "Oh, you mean the Return of the Shadow?" Uh, should the electorate decide that the Return of the Shadow is uh, is uh, the next place we're going, I admit that. Uh, um, you know, if I were, um, uh, if I were a betting man, I wouldn't bet against that. Uh, but you know, uh, it's, uh, it's, but we are certainly going to, going to continue, um, the pattern of, you know, we, we don't want to do any book by any one author twice in a row, which particularly sort of with this crowd particularly means Tolkien. So I, I, I've been really, really loving um, the other books that we've done over the last couple of years. You know, I look back and um, of course myself, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tempted to, to say, oh man, wouldn't it be fun just to dig into the, you know, the history of the Lord of the Rings segment of the history of Middle-earth and just kind of keep, keep sort of focusing and plowing through that. That would be really fun. But you know, when I look back over the last three years, um, you know, the time that we've spent talking about, you know, Dune and Watership Down and, and Ender's Game and, and uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, uh, which I loved so much, you know, th- those have been just huge highlights. I've I've had so much fun doing those. My, the Dracula class, um, I wouldn't, uh, I would not want to go back and get, howsoever much fun I am having uh, in the history of Middle-earth, I would never have wanted to, uh, to go back and, and do that. Brandon Minnick says, "Till we have faces." Brandon, I'm actually rereading "Till we have faces" right now. I am I am in the middle of "Till we have faces." Um, "Till we have faces," greatest book C.S. Lewis ever wrote. I mean, it is by far. I mean, by far, the best work of fiction um, in the career of C.S. Lewis. Absolutely mind blowing book. Um, and I'm just like marveling at it again, rereading it right now, as I happen to be doing. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I urge you to, uh, to be, you know, to be thinking about nominations and stuff. So, so th- th- there's going to be the one we're going to do Ursula Le Guin, then the one more book. 
and uh, that that you're going to be electing, and then um, we'll sort of go over the you know bring in the uh, all the the new uh, donors and people um, you know in the electorate for that next election. So that's what we're going to do. Cecilia said, "Oh yeah, uh, Pern. There you go. We, we could do Pern. I just did uh, Dragon Riders of Pern in my Modern Fantasy two class, so I've I've been thinking about that lately. That would be fun to do. Um, anyway, so." We can uh, we can do anything anything you guys like. I, I would be well okay almost. I still do have my my uh, reserved veto power, which I've never used or been tempted to use. Uh, but um, uh, but we'll see how Curtis way teases me about Twilight again. Hey, no way, man! I, if Twilight gets elected, I'm not vetoing it. I'm totally going to do Twilight. I can't promise to spend all that many weeks on it because uh, I'd say all I have to say about it in probably a couple sessions. But I would totally do it. Um, so. Uh, so, you know, that's fine. Go ahead. I dare you, Curtis. I dare you. Um, uh, anyway, so that's cool. And by the way, a couple of people have, have asked, um, you know, does it have to be books? I, I don't think so. I would be happy to, uh, uh, to I mean, if people wanted to nominate, uh, you know, a, like a, a film or a, or a TV series, it'd be hard. I mean, you know, to do a, a, a huge multi-part TV series in one session. I mean, it would end up being like a marathon session, but, um, but I'd be happy to, I'd be happy to do that. Firefly Curtis, totally. Man, but I'd love to do a Firefly session. That'd be really cool. Um, so, um, so yeah, Jordan Sunderland says Babylon five, you know, I have never watched Babylon five, Jordan, and it's been on my like list of things that I like really should do before I die. Um, but, uh, but yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Lots of, lots of things, um, that, um, that we totally, that we totally should do. So yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's, all those things are open. The world remains open to us. We've, you know, the Mythgard Academy has been running now for three full years where we're, this is, this, this will be completing the, the dispossessed. We'll complete our third year uh, running the Mythgard Academy. And it feels like we've like barely, barely started to, started to scratch the surface, right? There's so many things out there that we could talk about. Um, uh, and uh, that I look forward to, uh, to, discussing you with you guys so anyway all right um let's uh with that in mind let's let's get back into the quintess Silmarillion, or else i'm not gonna act no i'm gonna get through it and i don't care even if i have to keep yana up until noon i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna finish quintess Silmarillion tonight because this is it all right i was talking last time here's the uh, we're gonna begin um, so I have, I have three parts again tonight, except the difference between this time and last no- and last time is so I'm going to get through all three of them. Uh, part one, I'm going to do what I was going to do in part three last time. That is looking at the Quintus Silmarillion as a transitional text between uh, not only the early Silmarillion stuff and the later Silmarillion stuff, but actually between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, and then I want to be uh, looking at sort of Christopher Tolkien uh, as editor basically, um, and looking at what we learn, because I think we learn a very great deal, actually, about Christopher Tolkien as editor uh, in this section, especially in that Baron and Luthien bundle of chapters, right? Um, Which is really, really cool stuff. So I want to take some time to look at that. And then I want to be thinking about the end of the story. Where does Tolkien take this story in the end, and what can we see from that? What kinds of conclusions can we draw about kind of the trajectory of the Silmarillion, right? From looking at where he, uh, where he chose to end it. So we'll, um, that's where, that's where we're going to get to here tonight. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to get to the, the, uh, the, uh, the apocalypse. We're going to get to the end of the world tonight. That's the goal. No, that's not the goal. That is our, our determination. So 
the Quintus Silmarillion as transitional text. Again, as I said last time, we've been focusing on this a lot. I've been focusing on this primarily as like the published Silmarillion Mark One, right? You know, the the the, the fact that this is the this is the the culmination of all the Silmarillion work that Tolkien has been doing since the Book of Lost Tales. That's a really huge deal. I mean, obviously, this text, the the texts that we are getting here in the Lost Road volume, um, are really, really important for that reason. And it's fascinating to think and to look back on the sort of where he's come and you know what's changed and what hasn't changed and and uh, you know what is his vision for the Silmarillion as it stands here in 1937. That's been really cool, but it's also a really major transition. The it's really a piece of, of a far bigger transition in Tolkien's literary life, right? Um, he might have thought that this stuff as the culmination of the Silmarillion material, which he'd been working on for 20 years by that time, right? He might have thought, like, this is like, this is my magnum opus, right? This is the, uh, this is the, like, the, you know, the, so this Silmarillion material, this stuff in the Lost Road, Tolkien may have thought, I, 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 I would, would even expect at that time, for him to be thinking, this is like the crowning literary work of my career, right? Every reason to think that it would look that way to him at that point, right? Um, but little did he know at that time that it was actually this new thing that was coming, right? Um, as Christopher has emphasized and, and emphasizes very heavily in today's reading, um, the transition is coming. He's about to begin the Lord of the Rings. Um, and indeed, uh, I love that moment when Christopher sort of quotes that, that last sentence of the Turin section and says, you know, that, that that was probably the last sentence that Tolkien composed before he composed the first sentence of chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Which was, which was really, really neat. Um, uh, so it's, 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 it's really fun to see that kind of, tr- that, 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 shift happening and to know with the you know the foresight of history right that we have thinking about Tolkien in 1937 we know the significance of what's coming right but he doesn't know that yet to him doubtless i mean it seems again all the evidence would suggest this hobbit story this new hobbit story that he's going to set out and write is just going to be kind of a, a sideline a distraction even maybe from the real work right of of the silmarillion as the hobbit wasn't really I mean, that that was not the thing that his literary career was building towards, right? That wasn't the story that had been incubating within him for decades, right? That was something that was just kind of, in a sense, sort of tossed off. Um, uh, so, anyway, yeah, he, he doubtless wouldn't have seen this coming. Um, in the Shaping of Middle-earth class, we were t- when, we were, when we were looking at the Quinta, in, you know, the sketch and the Quinta in particular... Um, I was emphasizing how that was contemporary with The Hobbit, right? That is contemporary with the composition of The Hobbit. He was writing The Hobbit in those first couple years of the 1930s, from like 1930 to 1933, right around in there. That's when he's actually writing The Hobbit um, in manuscript. And it's, there's you know, a bunch of editing and revision and completing that happens afterwards, but that's really... The t- and that's the same exact time that he's writing the sketch in the Quentin Olderinwa. So all that earlier Quentin stuff, the stuff that, uh, that uh, Christopher refers to as, as the Q material um, within the Lost Road stuff, um, that's the stuff that he's writing at the same time. So, so those of you who were in the class will remember that... Uh, I was emphasizing in particular looking at the way that he treated dwarfs in the um, uh, in the Quenta and think like this is like 
these are what dwarves are to him at that time, right? So it it was it was really fun, and I think really illuminating um, uh, to read through the 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 the, the Quinta stuff on the dwarves and kind of read that forward into the Hobbit. Um, think about thinking about uh, Thorin and company um, in the exact in, in the direct context of that stuff. Really, I think opens up some. Um, some new vistas on the Hobbit, and again, we talked about this uh, in the previous class. Um, but as we've seen, there's a lot of evidence for uh, a, st- a sort of firewall between the Hobbit and the other material, right? I mean, again, it's the stuff is the stuff is there. We can see what he's working on, but the Hobbit is not a fully naturalized part of the Silmarillion world. That's pretty clear, and as we can see in the Quintus Silmarillion, as we have seen so far in this later Silmarillion material, later now several years after he's finished the Hobbit and it's off at the publishers and being published, um, but he's still working on this Silmarillion stuff and still operating, it seems, with a firewall up uh, between the Hobbit and the Silmarillion world that he's making. All that stuff about the soullessness of the dwarves, those those passages which get under the skin of so many of you, um, seem to me to be evidence of that, right? I mean, it's I don't at all believe that Thorin Oakenshield, as we see him in the final chapters of The Hobbit, has no soul. I, 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 I cannot believe that. I cannot believe that that was actually what was in Tolkien's mind uh, as he wrote the last chapters of The Hobbit. Instead, that seems to me to be the, the fact that during and after he's already written that, you know, he's the, the fact that the guy who wrote the deathbed scene of Thorin could then, you know, cheerfully write stuff about how dwarves have no souls is to me very strong evidence of that firewall, right? Between the, in his mind, between the Hobbit and the Silmarillion stuff. Okay, so there's that. But it's important to remember that the Quintus Silmarillion stands between the Hobbit, and the Lord of the Rings. I think that we can see, because he's, the Hobbit is in the past for him, right? Unlike with the Quinta, where the two of them are just kind of parallel projects, which don't necessarily have much to do with each other, but there are similar things going on, and so we can see some kinds of connections. Um, But, um, it's funny, Carita says, I never realized I loved dwarves so much until Tolkien describes them as soulless and like unto orcs. Exactly, yeah, that really that really pushes the button, right, Carita? That's, that's, that's uh, you know, when you really kind of push your chips into the middle of the table, right, and realize what you have at stake in dwarves, right? Uh, exactly. Um, so, um, uh, so, okay, but, but again, it's not just, these are not just two things that are going on at once. So it's cool to read the Quenta Noldorinwa, and to realize he's writing this at the same time as The Hobbit, and that that creates some really interesting crossover, sort of seeing where Tolkien's mind is working in similar ways and some ways in which it's working differently in the different stories. But the Quintus Silmarillion is in a different, and in my from my point of view, really kind of an exciting uh, position, because The Hobbit is now in the rearview mirror, right? Um, the Hobbit is, is in the past. The Lord of the Rings is in the future. And in between them, is the Quintus Silmarillion, right? Though it's not, it seems not, still not in Tolkien's mind to be a a link, right? He wouldn't think of it in those terms. I mean, surely when he does break off writing the Turin story and pick up his pen again and start writing the story about, you know, Bilbo's farewell party, um, he is thinking like, and now for something completely different, right? He's not thinking of this as like a logical transition from the Quintus Silmarillion. And yet there are ways in which I think we can see it actually operating that way. Um, 
let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Um, remember this passage from The Hobbit? If the elf king had a weakness, it was for treasure, especially for silver and white gems. And though his hoard was rich, he was ever eager for more, since he had not yet as great a treasure as other elf lords of old. His people neither mined nor worked metals or jewels, nor did they bother much with trade or with tilling the earth. Now, that sentence about, uh, since he had not yet as great a treasure as other elf lords of old, um... Was, is always is, is as it stands in the Hobbit, rather mysterious, right? We the only elf lords of old that we hear about in the Hobbit is the old elvish city of Gondolin, right? We know that there was this great elvish city of Gondolin which has fallen, and and we know that it th- there were treasures of wonder there. Uh, we know that in several ways, right? We know that because they find the swords, right? The elvish swords which are from Gondolin and therefore are magical. And so when uh, Bilbo finds that his sword glows in the dark, he's like, wow, look, my, my, my sword. You remember how he calls it to Gollum, a blade from Gondolin, right? Um, which is practically synonymous with like wondrous and magical, right? Um, and uh, anyway, so so there's that, but um, but other than that, we don't really get much, and even that is quite vague. Of course, in the Hobbit, um, the uh, all the uh, the 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 Gondolin stuff. Um, Thinking about this passage, sort of remembering this passage in The Hobbit, this passage in the Quintus Silmarillion really jumped out at me. Now Thingol had in Minogroth deep armories filled with great wealth of weapons, metal wrought like fish's mail and shining like water in the moon, swords and axes, shields and helms wrought by Telkar himself, or by his master, Zirak the Old, or by Elvenrites more skillful still. For many things he had received in gift that came out of Valinor, and were wrought by Feanor in his mastery, than whom no craftsman was greater in all the days of the world. Yet he handled the helm of Gumlin as though his hoard were scanty, and he spoke courteous words, saying, Proud were the head that bore this helm, which Gumlin bore, father of Hurin. Okay, so this passage, uh, I mean, okay, it's a, it's a setup, right? I mean, so there, there are a few things we can see going on here. Um, first, it's obviously a setup to like how awesome is the dragon helm, right? Um, but it's but it, but it's a fairly long sell for that, right? What we get is this long aside about how wealthy Thingol is and what an amazing horde Thingol had, right? Now, those of you uh, 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 with um, long memories like Nancy, will remember he's drawing directly on the Lay of Lathian here. Um, the opening of Canto 2 of the Lay of Lathian is the description of... No, that's Canto 1. Canto 2 is the one that opens with the description of Morgoth and his horrible realm. Canto 1 opens with uh, the description of Thingol's uh, lovely realm. So we have the the like Tale of Two Cities element thing going on there uh, at the beginning of the Lay of Lathian. Um, and if uh, uh, those of you who uh, careful observers who recognized the uh, metal wrought like fish's mail from the line of Gimli's song in Moria, uh, describing the wealth of the dwarves, um, if you didn't take the lay of, uh, of, of la- the lays of Balerion class, you may re- you may be interested to know that that song is taken word for that that chunk of that song is taken word for word from the lay of Lathian. So the song that Gimli sings in praise of the dwarvish treasures of Khazad Doom is 
a word-for-word lifting of these lines which were originally written to describe the horde and the and the gorgeous underground realm of Thingol in Doriath. Um, so they, those were actually elvish treasures originally, um, which is kind of uh, which is kind of fun. Um, so. Um, uh, yeah, um, Arthur and Yana are uh, noticing the uh, Talhar's master, uh, Zirak. Yeah, Zirak, uh, as in Zirak Ziggle, yeah, same word. Um, you know, so the, the name certainly does seem to be connected there. Um, uh, yeah, we know nothing else about Zirak the Old, uh, whether he was going to come into the stories more or whatever, but um, um, <laughs> Josiah McCoy says, clearly this... In- this Intellectual property theft is the ancient grievance between the elves and the dwarves. Yeah, exactly. If uh, if uh, one of the elves of Doriath could have heard Gimli reciting that song in Hazadum, they would have been all over them like, that's copyright infringement. Um, uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I agree, Josiah. Doubtless, that's really the root of the matter. Um So, Nancy's right. This, of course, is taken from the lay of Lathian. What, but again, my question is, why... Why? Why do it, right? Especially since we know from Christopher's explanations, Tolkien's having kind of a hard time compressing, right? When he's doing the Baron and the Turin stories, having having kind of a hard time keeping it concise and within the scope of the Quintus Silmarillion thing that he's doing, right? Um, he didn't have to do this. He didn't have to say this, but we get this long explanation of how rich Thingol is and how rich his hoard is. Um, and um, that's, uh, I think that's, um, uh, I think that that's kind of fascinating. And again, to me, this passage almost sounds like, like a gloss on the Hobbit passage. You know, is it, you know, can we, can we, can we get here a sort of a, a hint like that, that this is in some, because remember that's in the past now, right? Um, I don't think he's going to forget this reference. And the elven king of Mirkwood, right, is so much like Thingol, is obviously a sort of, I say obviously, I think it's obvious um, that the elven king of Mirkwood is a sort of recycling of the Thingol concept, right? It's not Thingol. They're not the same because there's that firewall, right? It's not the same story. It's not the same world. But he has this concept, which is really cool, right? Um, the elven king in the, you know, in the caves, in the wood, by the stream, you know, by the river, right? Um, and uh, so he, so he reuses this, this, um, uh, this concept, right? Um, so, okay, and anyway, that, that, that seems to be how this stuff works in The Hobbit, but again, this is now in the past, right? He's, He's 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 got the Hobbit text in his mind. He certainly has it in his mind, f- still very closely while he's working on the Quintus Silmarillion, because he's revising the proofs of the Hobbit right during the time that he's working on the Quintus Silmarillion. So uh, so you know, it, does this stuff get added as a, a almost like a kind of explanation? Right? Is he think is he developing this idea? Well, l- let me make sure to emphasize how great a horde Thingol had. Right? Is that a hint that as Tolkien's going through the Quintus Silmarillion, maybe the firewalls are coming down or, or he's thinking about lowering the firewalls? Is that is that beginning is that concept? The idea of merging these two worlds, is that kind of beginning to sort of come up over the horizon, right, in his creative world? Maybe. I don't know. Let's look at some other examples. Mirkwood. Now 
Um, Mirkwood is an old idea on the one hand. That is, uh, once again, Mirkwood in The Hobbit seems to be another example, one of the many, many examples in The Hobbit of simply him borrowing from his stock. He's got this all this great material, right? All these wonderful concepts, um, which he really loves that he's worked into his his Silmarillion stories. So he just takes those and uses those in The Hobbit and Mirkwood. um, The identity between Mirkwood and Tower Nefuen was clear, at least, again, the, the the parallel between them was pretty clear. We looked at this, again, the, uh, some of you will remember, we looked at this when, in the Laser Balerian class when we were in um, Tower Nefuen in the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin. Um, remember, it's in Tower Nefuen that, uh, uh, that Turin, it's, it's right there on the edges of Tower Nefuen, that, that, that Turin kills Beleg. Um, so in that, in the description right around that context was when we were looking at the descriptions and saying, gosh, doesn't this sound just like Mirkwood, right? We can see, we can see sort of exactly where he's borrowing that in order to put it in The Hobbit. But look how this passage goes. But Barahir would not flee and remained contesting the land foot by foot with the servants of Morgoth. This, of course, is in the Battle of Sudden Flame description. But Morgoth pursued his people to the death until few remained, and he took all the forest in the highland of Dorthonian, save the highest and inmost region, and turned it little by little to a place of such dread and lurking evil that even the orcs would not enter it unless need drove them. Thereafter it was, there, therefore it was after called by the gnomes Taurnafuin, which is Mirkwood, and Delduwath, deadly nightshade, for the trees that grew there after the burning were black and grim, and their roots were tangled, groping in the dark like claws, and those who strayed among them became lost and blind, and were strangled or pursued to madness by phantoms of terror. Once again, we have something which sounds shockingly like Mirkwood of the Hobbit, right? But note, again, remember, this is where the sequencing becomes so interesting to me. This is no longer, oh, this is where he got Mirkwood from The Hobbit, right? Because Mirkwood from The Hobbit came before this passage. Does this passage bear resemblance to the earlier descriptions of Mirkwood? Yes, absolutely. Especially the business about um, uh, strangled and pursued to madness by phantoms of terror. The phantoms of terror were always a thing associated with Tower Nafuin. That's why even the orcs feared to go there in the lay of the children of Hurin. Um, but... Um, now we have the blackness of the trees, right? The tangled roots and the uh, the groping in the dark like claws, right? Uh, those who strayed among them became lost and blind. This is written by the guy who has already written The Hobbit. And so it's not just the concept of Markwood being lifted from the Silmarillion to the Hobbit anymore. Now we have the description of Tower Nefuin in the Silmarillion, the thing which inspired Markwood in the Hobbit, which is now being, it seems, at least in part, the details of it are being derived or drawn from the Hobbit descriptions itself. So that which was once borrowed from the Silmarillion and placed in the Hobbit is now being like reborrowed and brought back into the Silmarillion, even down to the actual name. Right? The, actually, it, it wasn't called Mirkwood before. Um, it was called Taranafuan. Um, and he, uh, he, you know, so the name Mirkwood was, was kicking around, and it's a traditional name. It's not like it's a unique name that he invented. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, 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 Cecilia says he had everything but the spiders. Except he had the spiders, too, actually. Remember, the spiders are in the south. Um, 
where the, the Baron has to pass through them. It's the, the descendants of Ungoliant, right, on his way down to Doriath. They're bigger and a lot fiercer. You couldn't, no, no hobbit could kill them with a single rock. I mean, it's like, th- those are basically like Shelob's siblings, basically, uh, that are down there. So like multiple Shelob's. Um, uh, in the southern ranges of Taranufuan. But yeah, even even Cecilia, even spiders are there not 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 in this paragraph, of course, but but uh in the story, they're they're totally there. Um uh, Yeah, uh, Brian says is is it partly just that he's adapting descriptions from the Hobbit that uh, that already have a natural parallel in the Quinta? Yeah, no, I I think so. But that's what's cool, right? The fact that we're seeing that kind of cross-fertilization more. Again, seeing now the influence kind of going back the other way and altering the Silmarillion. The reason I think that's so interesting is that this is where, again, I think what we're seeing is the sort of... not the dropping of the firewall, right? That um, the, the imaginative disconnection between the Hobbit and its world and the Silmarillion world is not going to drop like a curtain. Um, but it's, I, I think it's, I think it's crumbling and this kind of back, back and forth thing that we see, um, you know, this question of like, so wait, which text is inspiring, which now, um, is some of the places in which I think we can see that process, um, beginning. Uh, Yana saying, could this be him thinking about the sequel he's been asked to write? Maybe I I don't think so specifically. And we say I don't see any reason to think that like these thoughts about Merkwood are leading him to think about sequel ideas in particular, Yana. But but I will say, the fact that all that stuff is kind of here on the table, right? He's just written the Hobbit and he's going back and forth with the publisher about what you know what next to publish. Of course, he's hoping it's going to be the Silmarillion. Still at this point, um, but nevertheless, like it's it's the Hobbit world. The Hobbit was not a one off completely. Right, he's. It's not just a story that he wrote and is left behind. Um, it's still been kind of living in his imagination, and uh, and and so therefore, it's 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 something that's very active in sort of the atmosphere in which he's writing the Quintus Silmarillion. If you see what I mean by that. Um, now, I don't want to create a sort of an overly simplistic or false narrative. There are other things that I think serve as evidence that the firewall still is up um, and that he's not, he's not yet actively synthesizing these two works. I don't want to give a wrong impression about that. Let me, let me, let me show you what I mean. Um, Another Hobbit passage, indeed from the same page uh, of the Hobbit as the previous one. In ancient days, they had had wars, the uh, wood elves, of course, they had had wars with some of the dwarves whom they accused of stealing their treasure. It is only fair to say that the dwarves gave a different account, and said that they only took what was their due, for the elf-king had bargained with them to shape his raw gold and silver, and had afterwards refused to give them their pay. Um, now, we talked about this passage in the context of the Quenta Noldorinwa in the shaping of Middle-earth, because when we read the story of the fall of Doriath and uh, the war between the elves of Doriath and the dwarves and the slaying of Thingol, um, uh, or Tinwillant, that stuff in the shaping of Middle Earth. The point I was making there was that that's the story. Clearly, when he write when he wrote this passage, right in the early thirties in the Hobbit, um, it's it's obviously that's that that's the antecedent story that he's thinking of. And when you read 
the Quentin Olderinwa version of the the Tinwellent slash Thingol um, uh, story w- with the dwarves, it seems pretty clear that you're reading like this. This what is described there in that sentence matches quite closely to what we see in the Quentin Olderinwa. Um, but then we have the the passage that we we're looking at before. If the Elf King had a weakness, it was for treasure. And then jumping down to the end, because we already read some of that. um, All this was well known to every dwarf, though Thorin's family had had nothing to do with the old quarrel I have spoken of. Okay? All right. Um, Thorin's family... So we've got the story, which is, again, in the Quenta Nolarinwa matches up pretty, pretty, pretty pretty close to exactly uh, to the Silmarillion story, right? So again, a a clear sort of overlap, a clear, another clear sort of importation or borrowing uh, from his other work. Um, Look where we are in the Quintus Silmarillion now, several years later. Themselves they named Kuzud, but the gnomes called them Nueg, the stunted. And those who dwelt in Nogrod they called Enfang, the longbeards, because their beards swept the floor before their feet. Their chief cities in those days were Hazad-dum and Gabilgathol, which the, which the elves of Beleriand called, according to their meaning in the language of Doriath, Nogrod, the dwarf mine, and Belagost, the great fortress. But few of the elves, save Meglin of Gondolin, went ever thither, and the dwarves trafficked into Beleriand and made a great road, passing under the shoulders of Mount Dolmed, which followed thence the course of Askar and crossed Gelion at Sarn Athrad. Their battle later befell, but as yet the dwarfs troubled the elves little, while the power of the gnomes lasted. Okay. Well, now, uh, the mere fact that we have the name Chazad-Dum appearing for the first time in Tolkien's work is really exciting, right? And um, if you're anything like me, coming across that name, just popping out at you in the middle of this passage, is like a... Uh, you know, sort of like a fanboy moment, right? And you're like, who look, Khazad-Dum, that's awesome! And maybe then you take the next step to say, whoa, Khazad-Dum was Nogrod? Like, those were the same? Like, so that that's what, because, I mean, Khazad-Dum, uh, they're the Kuzud, so Khazad-Dum means dwarf mine, right? Okay, right? Yeah, remember the Dwaro Delph, the, 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 the digging of the dwarves? That's, that's again, that's what it means, um, as Gimli translates it later on. But that's not Nogrod, right? We're told explicitly in the published Silmarillion that Khazad-dûm is totally different and unrelated and in a completely different mountain range from Nogrod and Belagost of old, right? Um, but apparently so, okay, so it's already like, all right, mind partially blown that Khazad-dûm was originally one of those two original, you know, it, it, it was Nogrod, right? Uh, notice, of course, uh, that Khazad-dûm is still associated with the Longbeards, right? Um, the, 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 the people of Durin, who are named Longbeards in The Hobbit. That's the name um, uh, when, uh, when the, the moon letters on the map in The Hobbit uh, speak of Durin's day. Um, Thorin mentions that, specifically says, Durin was my first ancestor, right? The father of our people, the Longbeards. Um, so that, 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 that name is still explicitly used to identify Durin's people and therefore Thorin's own clan, the Longbeards. Um, Okay. But again, if you're like me, you might be so busy kind of having a squee moment about seeing Khazad-dûm that it might take you a moment, as it took me many moments, uh, to put together the strange significance of this fact, right? Okay, wait a second. If Nogrod is Khazad-dûm, 
the fortress of the Longbeards, then it was explicitly the Longbeards who kill Thingol and steal his treasure. Right? Which, okay, I could get over, but, but, yeah, but the Hobbit says explicitly Thorin's family had nothing to do with the old quarrel I have spoke, so it describes what seems to be transparently a reference to the issue in Doriath, right? And says Thorin's family had nothing to do with that. And then several years after writing that, he is including within his larger story, within his Silmarillion, an explicit contradiction to that, right? It was the Longbeards, in fact, who were part of that struggle. So I point to this, and I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not really sure what to do with this, I have to say. Um, I, one reading of this, I mean, in, in my mind, the sort of the, um, the, 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 the quickest explanation of, or the, 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 the most obvious suggestion of this, um, is, um, is that the firewall is still there, right? That this is evidence that, that the firewall is still like, he's not trying to reconcile the Hobbit. He's, he's not setting out to, to bring the Hobbit into accord or the Silmarillion into accord with the Hobbit, right? Um, the fact that he's willing to just flatly contradict, and that's a kind of thing. Um, I don't myself believe that this is just an error. Um, I don't think so. This is a conceptual thing. I, I, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think this is, this is an error. I think that, um, it's, um, it's a, an, a shameless contradiction. Again, but if you, if, if you were to have said to Tolkien in 1937, Hey, that contradicts what you said in the Hobbit. I think he would have said, what the heck are you talking about? That's a totally different story, right? It's not part of the Silmarillion. So again, I, it's hard for me not to read this as evidence that, that that's still there, right? Um, now, James Lieback points out that uh, there doesn't appear to be a connection between the minds of Moria and the Hobbit with Khazad-dûm here. No, see, James, again, I think you could say uh, Moria, right, the minds of Moria are mentioned in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit. Um, uh, but there's no... Um, it's not that... the. It's not identified as Khazad-dûm, um, and certainly not, uh, James, as you say, not connected to this particular tradition uh, in any way. Um, so anyway, again, I, I take this as evidence that the firewall is not, he's not systematically taking it down. So there's, uh, so again, that's why I, I wanted to talk about this so as not to, to give a false impression, but I do think we can see that it's kind of sliding, um, sliding in that direction. Let me... Um, uh, another more dwarf stuff, lots of dwarf stuff, because uh, it's the dwarfs are the, the most obvious crossover with the Hobbit tradition. The smithies of Nogrod and Belagost were busy in those days. This is right before the near ninth, the near ninth or Nediad, as it still was, and it's not yet the near ninth or Noidiad. Um, the near ninth or Nediad, the Battle of, Un- of Unnumbered Tears. Um, so leading up to that, as uh, uh, Mydros is rallying his folks and and getting all the uh, you know the alliance together, the smithies of Nogrod and Belagost were busy in those days, making mail and sword and spear for many armies, and the dwarfs in that time became possessed of much of the wealth and jewelry of elves and men, though they went not to war themselves. For for we do not know the right causes of this quarrel, they said, and we favor neither side 
until one hath the mastery. Now, um, you may remember uh, from the shaping of Middle-earth, from the Quentin Alderinwa. In the Quentin Alderinwa, the dwarves were explicitly playing both sides. Um, they were selling arms both to Mydros and his people and to Morgoth. Um, so they were simply flatly and unashamedly profiteers of, of the whole situation. Um, this is not nearly so con so condemnatory as the Quentin Alderinwa version. We can see him kind of backing off that a little bit here. Um, they're not bad guys, overtly bad guys, but there are kind of implications, right? Um, uh, making mail and sword and spear for many armies is kind of deliciously ambiguous, right? How many armies? Which armies, I wonder? Um, but it doesn't... Um, but it doesn't explicitly say that they're selling weapons to the armies of Morgoth. The fact that they, the dwarves, are not willing to ally themselves or commit themselves... Exactly, Nick, there are multiple armies of elves and men, exactly as you say. It, it, it might just mean that, right? Um, and they are holding themselves neutral, um, and they even explicitly say, we're going to throw in with whoever's winning, right? Um, we favor neither side until one hath the mastery, right? So they're, they're, they're quite shameless about that. Um, uh, if you remember The Hobbit in very great detail, you'll remember the, uh, the passage I'm quoting there in the subtitle of this slide, um, that uh, dwarves in general are not heroes, right? And, you know, many of them are, many of them are pretty bad lots. Um, but some of them are decent enough uh, uh, people if, if you don't expect too much, right? Um, that's in the, in the passage where the dwarves are packing Bilbo off to go explore the, 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 the dragon's den um, uh, for them on their, on their behalf. Um, and, and we can see, yeah, yeah, the dwarves are, the dwarves are, are pretty bad lots, but they're not as bad lots as they were before, right? We can see him kind of, again, he's written The Hobbit, right? And yes, the guy who wrote Thorin's deathbed scene can still call them soulless, and yet we see him backing off from that too, right? There's already this sort of movement towards where he's ultimately going to going to get to, right? But he's not there yet. It's clear that his idea of dwarves is nowhere near what we're going to get of dwarves by the time we get to Gimli, son of Glowen, right? By the time we get to the full Lord of the, Ring, Lord of the Rings conception. Um, and yet... I wonder if the if we if we can't see that firewall crumbling here in places. Um, one of the thing that I would add, um, one thing that uh, reading all this stuff has really been making me think about this time around. I've been reflecting more on the representation of dwarves in the Lord of the Rings. Um, if if you'd asked me before, what do you think about? Dwarves as they're depicted in The Hobbit and dwarves as they're depicted in The Lord of the Rings. Big jump? Pretty consistent? What would you say? Um, you know, before I would have said pretty consistent. I mean, you know, there's some stuff in The Hobbit that we don't really get, you know, and, and, and he kind of backs off from, like the pretty bad lots thing. Um, you know, there... Uh, but, but you know, relatively... I, I, I wouldn't have considered The Lord of the Rings dwarves to be quite different, Right. 
but notice in all of the 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 sort of arguments we've been having about dwarves, you know, all of the uh, all of the defending of dwarves that you guys have wanted to do, it's Lord of the Rings dwarves, right? It's Gimli that you guys are all defending. Um, what outrages you guys? What has outraged you guys over the course of this class uh, in the concept of of soulless dwarves? You are all thinking about Gimli and Khazad-dûm, right? Gimli, uh, you know, uh, just swooning at the glittering caves of Aglarond, right? And you can't, um, you can't accept the idea that Gimli has no soul, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. I see that, um, and seeing that, I mean, I can see a fair bit of continuity between the Hobbit dwarves and the Quintus Silmarillion dwarves. Um, they seem to me really pretty similar. Um, I do agree that ultimately Thorin's deathbed scene is irreconcilable with the soullessness concept, but remember he has dropped the soullessness concept apparently by the end of the writing of the Quintus Silmarillion, so he seems to have gone that way too. Um, the Lord of the Rings stuff is really a bigger jump forward than I think it looks at first, if you just take the two books, The Hobbit and The Fellowship of the Ring, and compare the two of them, right? Um, if you just do that, it looks like it's fairly consistent, right? If you're just thinking about Thor and Oakenshield and Balin and Gimli, right? It's like, yeah, you know, dwarves, you know, the, the dwarves are the dwarves, right? Um, but not so much, right? Um, I think... Uh, there's, uh, it, it, I'm tempted to say, remember how, uh, how Elrond says of uh, when, when he meets Frodo, he says that, uh, uh, you know, perhaps Bilbo is, uh, not as, uh, as, as, as singular as he thought, right? He thought that Bilbo was just this extraordinary, um, you know, no other hobbits were like him. And then he meets Frodo and the rest of them is like, well, maybe, maybe Bilbo's not quite so singular as I thought, right? Maybe he's, uh, I mean, he, he's still cool. But maybe there are others like him, right? That you know more so than Elrond had uh, had 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 thought. Um, you know, it, I have sort of the same thoughts about Thorin, right? Thinking back to Thorin Oakenshield and his deathbed, in the context of the Hobbit and in the context of the Quintus of the Quentin Olderinwa and all that earlier stuff, Thorin Oakenshield and his deathbed scene seems pretty singular. Right. Um, this sort of shining exception of, uh, you know, dwarvish nobility in the midst of uh, of of all the rest of it. Then we meet Gimli and the others and it's like, OK, maybe 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 it's not quite so singular. But again, I think that's because this is the way, you know, in, in, in observing that, I think what we're seeing is the way in which Tolkien's uh, dwarves really, really do change uh, as he's as he's moving forward. Um, but uh, yeah, now. um James Liebeck, uh I'm not sure what to do with that. So James is pointing out, and, and thanks for pointing it out, James. I meant to note it, but I, I, I skipped over it. Um, he asks about the significance of all through the Quintus Silmarillion, him using dwarfs, dwarf, you know, FS as the plural instead of dwarves. Um, is it just more evidence for the firewall? Yeah, I wonder, James. I mean, on the one hand, he caught a lot of flack from the publisher about dwarves because dwarfs FS is the standard pluralization. Um, and it makes me wonder if it's, it, I'm not really sure what to do with it. If it makes sense to think of that as uh, anything to do with kind of the creative continuity, you know, d is it relevant to the firewall question? I'm not even really sure. 
it may be, I mean, it seems kind of significant to me, James, in that he not only had spelled dwarves that other way, but he had defended it, right? When the publisher wanted to change it to dwarfs and he's like, no, please don't do that. Um, uh, because just because he thought that dwarfs with an F with it, with an S was, uh, was a really clumsy pluralization. He says in his letter on this, that technically the plural of dwarf should be Dwaro, which is where Dwaro Delph comes from. Um, it just means more than one dwarf. Um, but, uh, but he didn't want to use Dwaro because it's too weird. So he just, he just changed the F to a V E S, um, you know, making it more like the pattern of what, of what we see in other English words. Um, but not just with an S slapped onto it. Cause that seems to have sort of, you know, pained the philologist in him to do that. Um, any more than you would just put an S at the end of elf, right. And say elves. Um, but yet he shifted back to it here. And I don't know, James, is it just that he, you know, got sick of this fight and, uh, and realized that, or, you know, or is he distancing it? I, I don't know. You know, um, um, I, 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 I'm really not sure what to do with it. Uh, but it is, but I, I feel like it's, 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 it's clearly significant. I mean, he's made that decision and it's a big decision. I mean, he's going back on, uh, he's kind of conceding the fight that he had with the publisher before. Um, is it like a concession to um to to the publisher like hoping like is this going to help them like be convinced to publish it right i mean is this like a goodwill uh offering to the publisher like to try to butter him up to accept it i have no idea like i have no idea i'm 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 speculating wildly right now um but uh but i really don't know but it's really cool okay um one uh one side note and then we'll get to a couple lord of the rings things um i hope you all noticed the origin of Durin's Bane as we went past it, right? This is in the, uh, the the War of Wrath. The Balrogs were destroyed, save some few that fled and hid themselves in caverns inaccessible at the roots of the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read the Silmarillion, which is, was, was, of course, well after I had uh, read The Lord of the Rings already dozens of times, um, when I got to this, because this line is, is, is there, I believe, word for word in the published Silmarillion, and when I got to that, um, I don't know about you, but I immediately said like, oh, retcon, right? That's totally setting like that. I, I, I took for granted, um, uh, because I read this so fa- long after the Lord of the Rings, I took for granted that this sentence was embedded in the Silmarillion material in order to set up, um, Durin's Bane, right? In order to set up the Balrog of Moria that clearly the, you know, the, the, the Balrog of Moria and the fight with Gandalf on the bridge came first, right? And then this was kind of added in there to, 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 to sort of, you know, build continuity there between it. Um, no, no, right? What we see is it works quite the other way around. Um, this came first. And yes, Yana, you're right. Gandalf's original enemy wasn't a Balrog. We'll get there. Uh, presumably, uh, when we do the history of the Lord of the Rings stuff, um, so as Christopher Tolkien alluded to, Yana in his in his uh, uh, his commentary on this, there's clear evidence. It is obviously not only not only did the 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 story of Durin's Bane not come before this passage, but it's clear that when that passage got this was not even the you couldn't even say this. Well, maybe he had it in his mind already, something like this, right? Clearly not, right? When he does write. Uh, the uh, Bridge of Khazad-dûm stuff, it's not a Balrog at first. Um, so this conception came from... So the idea that Balrogs are hiding out around, this is where um, 
this is you know this this is anticipating or you know it's, again it's anticipating what's going to happen in the Lord of the Rings or rather to say it in in another way, when he gets to the Lord of the Rings he's going to be going back and deliberately using this material. See the difference. See the difference between the relationship between the Hobbit and the Quintus Silmarillion and the Quintus Silmarillion and the Lord of the and the Lord of the Rings. Right when we get there. Um, he's not going to do it automatically. He doesn't come to all the decisions immediately that you know we might expect, but we will see him actively borrowing. Right, the fact that this is there, the fact that this sentence has already been written in the Quintus Silmarillion, um, is going to make the the the, the fight at the Bridge of Khazad-dûm possible. Right, um, we will see him actively drawing. So again, this is what I'm pointing to is that shift, that shift in mindset. Right, the uh, the later sort of acceptance in Tolkien's own mind, of the Quintus Silmarillion as a transitional text, um, as a link directly to uh, the world of the Lord of the Rings and therefore um, of the world of the Hobbit. Um, He's going to be making... So when we get to the Lord of the Rings, the firewall is going to be gone. And I think it's really interesting to see... You know, this is not itself evidence that the, that the, the firewall is crumbling, right? It is rather something which... Uh, um, is made more interesting by the fact that later on that firewall is is definitely going to be down. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, side note, which I could not forbear to point to. In case you ever find yourself embroiled in one of those fascinating do Balrogs have wings conversations... But he loosed upon his foes the last desperate assault that he had prepared, and out of the pits of Angband there issued the winged dragons that had not before been seen. Pay attention, for until that day no creature of his cruel thought had yet assailed the air. The winged dragons are special in Morgoth's armament precisely because they are the first air force he ever had. He never had any winged flying creatures of any kind prior to this. This has been consistent all the way through. It is here spelled out most explicitly within the text. Christopher Tolkien has talked about it in his commentaries uh, in the earlier books. This is the first time it has worked its way explicitly into the text like this. And remember, this is this is the, you know, this is the world that is going to be developed into the Lord of the Rings. So when we get to the Balrog in the Lord of the Rings, um, there is no question that the Balrog certainly doesn't fly and doesn't have wings. It has been a consistent element uh, of the, and this is the, you know, so we, when you get people who want to fight with you and, and, and who, who aren't correctly parsing the simile and metaphor that Tolkien is using with the wings of the Balrog in the description, you know, is the, the shadow, which is like wings, and then his wings, meaning the, sh- the shadow, which is like wings, um, shifting from simile to metaphor. You know, I, I, I never mind talking about the passage with people because it's a fun sort of English teacher moment, right? Let's talk about simile and metaphor and how those things work, right? Look at what he's done here and this imagery. Isn't that cool? Um, so, you know, it's kind of a fun, um, uh, 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 again, sort of teaching moment there. But but if, if you get somebody who just is absolutely not convinced, this is this is the uh, the sort of the plainest evidence. It's just totally off the table. Um. Anyway, so that's, this is, so if you've ever yourself harbored any doubts, again, this, I just wanted to point out this passage, which lays it out just as clearly and explicitly as anybody could possibly, uh, could possibly 
want. Um, and yes, uh, uh, Mary, you're absolutely right. Even in the fall of Gondolin, the dragons who attack Gondolin are clearly earthbound. Um, uh, Mary, they're explicitly like tanks. Uh, indeed, in the original descriptions, um, which is really the only ones we get, um, back in the, uh, the the Book of Lost Tales period, the Book of Lost Tales fall of Gondolin, which is the only full description, indeed, almost only the the only partial description we get. Um, I got, we, we get it in the Quentin Alderin when it, Alderin was well, but anyway, the only detailed account we get of the fall of Gondolin, um, he wrote that during World War One, and it seems that uh, it seems likely, certainly, Mary, that he was actually thinking of tanks uh, there. But um, anyway, anyway, uh, just wanted to kind of note that in passing uh, as we were as we were going by. Um, two more really, really cool anticipations of the Lord of the Rings that we can see in, uh, in the, in the Quintus Silmarillion here. Um, this is from Christopher Tolkien's commentary on the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, if you remember the Baron and Luthien story, really from almost any of the versions of it, uh, certainly from the Lay of Lathian forward, Lay of Lathian, uh, Quenta version, uh, published Silmarillion version, you will remember that after they escape from Angband, so they've cut the Silmaril from the Iron Crown of Morgoth, and they come out and Karkaroth is there, and Baron is like, hey, you know, I've got the Silmaril in my fist, uh, uh, and my my girlfriend here is all tuckered out, so I'm going to stand forward and say, go away. And Karkaroth bites his hand off, and then he's like, ow, Silmaril, and he takes off, Rain goes crazy, and goes rushing off, and Baron is like, ow, you just cut off my hand, and so now I'm uh, 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 not very happy either. And so there, there they are, both of them swooning, right? Luthien's all tired out, Baron's like, I'm bleeding out from my hand, and uh, and the Thorndor the eagle swoops down and carries them back to Doriath from there, right? Rescues them. Okay. That's the context of this passage here. So this, again, remember the context of of this specific passage uh, in Christopher's words here. This is where he's going through references in the published Silmarillion and explaining where they came from. Um, With wings swifter than the wind... The draft text B has at this point Thorandor led them, and the others were Hlandraval, Widewing, and Gwaiwar, his vassal. In the following text C, also of 1937, this became Thorandor was their leader, and with him were his mightiest vassals, Widewinged Hlandraval and Gwaiwar, Lord of the Wind. This was amended in 1951 to Gwaihir, the Lord of Storm, and in this form the passage is found in the Quintus Silmarillion manuscript. It was omitted in the published Silmarillion on account of the passage in the Return of the King, there came Gwaihir, the Windlord, and Landraval, his brother, mightiest of the descendants of old Thorondor, who built his eyries in the inaccessible peaks of the encircling mountains when Middle-earth was young. At the time, so Christopher Tolkien is saying, back in, 19, in, the, in the 1970s when I was editing the Silmarillion, at the time I did not understand the nature and dating of the end of the Quenta Silmarillion. It now appears that there was no reason to suppress the names. In fact, it seems that Gwaiwar was changed to Gwaihir to bring it into accord with the Lord of the Rings, however this is to be interpreted. Okay, so we... Understand the significance of what Christopher is saying here? Right, let's make sure this is all this is all sinking in. So, in the Quintus Silmarillion, in 1937, Tolkien writes, uh, Thorondor was their leader, and with him were his mightiest vassals, Landreval and Gwaiwar. Right? Okay, so Landreval and Gwaiwar 
are with Thorndor. And remember, what are they doing? They're the two people who have accomplished this almost, this like apparently a impossible quest, right? Going alone, just the two of them, uh, into the land of shadow and and uh, and 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 entering into the the heart of the ancient realm. Uh, and uh, well, okay, they acquired a treasure instead of getting rid of it, but uh, but anyway, other than that, it was very. And then afterwards, they've come out and they're wounded, right? And you know, they've gotten an extremity bitten off, right? Um, which was bearing the precious thing, right? So that was kind of a bummer in this case, a little, a little more happy, uh, in its way, uh, later on in the, in the return of the King. But anyway, and, and so there they are, but there they are having achieved this great thing and they're about, but they, and they've come up, they're, they're, they're collapsed and they're about to die there. Right. So the eagle swooped down and rescued them. And who is it who swoops down and rescues them? Thorandor with Landravel and Gwywar, right? Okay. So in 1937, that's what he writes. In 1951, after he has finished writing The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien goes back and revises it. And when he revises it, he explicitly changes Gwaiwar's name to Gwaihir to match the name that he had used in The Return of the King. So now here comes Christopher Tolkien in the mid-70s. And he gets to this passage in the Quintus Silmarillion, which is what primarily what he's basing uh, the text of the Baron and Luthien story in the published Silmarillion on. And he comes to this passage and he's like, ooh, this is going to be confusing, right? Because Dad used, he talked about Landreval and Gwaihir there, and, but then he incorporated, so he thought, Christopher said, remember he said he hadn't worked out all the chronology of the end of the Quintus Silmarillion yet? So here's Christopher Tolkien thinking, okay, so Dad must have written that before, and then he lifted that and put it in the Return of the King instead. So since he basically appropriated Gwaihir and Landreval rescuing the the refugees, right? Uh, he appropriated that in the Lord of the, in the Return of the King. Um, I'm going to cut it from the summer because that was a, that that was doubtless his intent, right? Doubtless his intent was um, he was he was going to remove that there because he's transposed that into the Return of the King. So it's going to be just Thorondor who comes down and rescues them. And uh, we'll save Landreval and Gwaihir exclusively for the return of the king. This is Christopher. So Christopher cuts Landreval and Gwaiwar from the story of Baron and Luthien, and they're not in the published Silmarillion. Now he's saying, no, Tolkien didn't just appropriate, he didn't just lift it. He was deliberately paralleling it, right? Um, he writes the Baron and Luthien story, rewrites the Baron and Luthien story in 1937 including these eagles who swoop down, these eagles named Gwaiwar and Landreval, who swoop down and rescue them in their plight, right? Then he goes and he writes The Lord of the Rings, and he gets to the end of The Lord of the Rings, and we've got Frodo and Sam, Frodo with his extremity bitten off, and they're lying there about to die on the slopes of Mount Doom, and Landreval and Gwaiwar, except his name has now been changed to Gwaihir, come and swoop down again and rescue them. And Tolkien, approving the parallel, Wanting the, in fact, wanting to clarify the parallel, goes back to his Silmarillion text and changes Gwaiwar to Gwaihir the Windlord, right? So that Tolkien's intention appears to have been that this, I'm flying in to rescue refugees who have just accomplished something awesome in the middle of the land of shadow duty, that Landreval and Gwaiwar, it's like, that's like their thing. It's a thing they do, right? They, the, the same two eagles did the same thing for Baron and Luthien as they do for Frodo and Sam. He intended that to be a mo. It's, he seems to have intended that, based on the evidence of this, to have intended that as a piece of actual continuity, 
between those stories. Remember Sam on the stairs of Kirathungal, right? When he thinks about the story of Baron and Luthien and he makes the parallel between what Baron and Luthien did and what they're doing and says, well, bless me, we're in the same tale still, right? Yeah, he didn't even then fully appreciate how exactly they're in the same tale and the same exact eagles are going to show up to, uh, to, to, to pull him and Frodo out of the fire as showed up to pull Baron and Luthien out of the fire, right? Um, you know, so th- there was the way that he had the narrative planned was going to be this, like, endorsement of Sam's observation. Yep, same story, same eagles, right? That's kind of amazing, right? Um, Yes, yeah, Nancy, exactly. Uh, Nancy says, and tragically, Christopher sees the names are the same and suppresses it so people don't get confused uh, and think the thing that actually turns out to be correct. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, That's what he's kind of apologizing for here. Uh, Christopher, he's apologizing here for screwing that up. Um, Yeah. Now, notice how Christopher says, however this is to be interpreted, right? Um, Because, Rachel, exactly the question you just asked, uh, Rachel Draper says, so are eagles immortal too or just very long-lived? Yeah, that's exactly the question, right? Um, um, If they're the same, I guess. They've been around, Landreval and Gwai here have been around for a really long time, right? Um, where's Thorondor? Is he still around? Is he retired? Right? Did he die? Did something happen to Thorondor? We don't really know. Um, but, um, but yeah, Brandon says, how many thousands of years is this? Um, as yet, um, as yet uncertain, uh, exactly about that. Um, it's, you know, it's not fully defined yet. Um, maybe, at the time, but you know, Brandon, we've got the tale of years, right? Or rather, the tale of years comes pretty quickly after the you know after the Lord of the Rings, so definitely, definitely thousands. They're definitely millennia old, um, which therefore leads us precisely, Mary, to the question you were just asking. She says, you know, I know that Tolkien didn't say so, but I've always wondered if these eagles are Manway's Maori. Are these the eagles of Manway? Um, you know. It, is Gwai here the Wind Lord that we meet in the Lord of the Rings? Is he merely a modern eagle, which is like a descendant of the eagles of Manway from the Silmarillion? Um, which is kind of what it seems, given the fact that we get Thorondor in, in the Silmarillion and Gwai here uh, in the in the Lord of the Rings. It seems like a, a parallel, right? Um, or maybe a distant descendant. I mean, they're called they're called the descendants of old Thorondor in the, in the Return of the King there. But, um, but Mary, the fact that Landreval and Gwaihir themselves personally were supposed to have been there and carried Baron and Luthien away shows they're not distant descendants. These are not modern scions of Thorondor. Um, it's not like Gwaihir is to Thorondor what, um, what the spiders of Mirkwood were to Ungoliant. It's not like that. It's closer to Gwaihir is to Thorondor as Shelob is to Ungoliant, right? One generation removed and really, really ancient, right? Shelob was probably herself one of those spiders that gave Baron a hard time uh, while he was going down uh, to Doriath. Um, so, interesting, right? But again, now think about this in the context Hobbit, Quintus Silmarillion, Lord of the Rings, right? Um, 
we get eagles in The Hobbit too, right? And eagles who come in you catastrophically in a very Silmarillion, Gwaihir-esque way, right? Um, but remember how the eagles are described in The Hobbit, right? They're, they're birds of prey and not super friendly birds of prey. Um, they're not noble birds, right? They're, they're, um, uh, they dislike the goblins and they enjoy discomforting the goblins, but, you know, they're, um, they're clearly not the messengers of Manway, right? Definitely not in The Hobbit. Um, but again, we can see this evolution, right? We can see how uh, this is, so do you see what I mean about these moments where we can see the Quintus Silmarillion as a transitional moment, right? The eagles in the Lord of the Rings are explicitly parallel to the eagles in the Hobbit, right? Down to the quotation to the, to the, the eagles are quoting, are the eagles, are, the eagles are quoting, the eagles are coming quotation that we get, uh, you know, from Pippin, right? Or, you know, that, that Pippin hears and remembers Bilbo. The parallel between Gwaihir the Windlord and the, and the, you know, the eagles of the Hobbit is explicit, um, and yet we see that now in Tolkien's mind, it's continuous, um, with, uh, uh, it's, they're continuous with the eagles of Manway from the Silmarillion tradition, right? Um, so, so again, we can see that firewall has come down, clearly come down, and now, like, retroactively is being brought down, um, uh, going back to The Hobbit. And I think in part, this sort of helps to explain some of Tolkien's negative attitude towards The Hobbit later on. Um, it became awkward. That firewall becomes awkward in retrospect. Once it comes down, the fact that that text, that published text, still has the firewall up um, becomes awkward, I think, uh, in Tolkien's mind. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, Brandon is saying the hobbits encountered both the same eagles and the same spider that Baron and Luthien did. Uh, yeah, it is kind of mind-blowing, isn't it, Brandon? But yeah, that seems to be kind of, uh, kind of the way of it. Um, the parallels between Frodo and Sam and Baron and Luthien are very elaborate. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Lance asks, why wouldn't this be added back in for a, a future edition of the Silmarillion? I don't know, Lance. You know what I wonder, Lance? Um, Christopher Tolkien seems to be tying up loose ends um, here in, in his advanced age. You know, he's been allowing for and, and uh, uh, you know, doing the, you know, the release of all these other texts, right? The Fall of Arthur was finally released. The Beowulf translation was finally released. All this stuff that's been coming out over the last few years, he's finally releasing after all these years. Lance, my, my hope, um, my, my, my hope is that before he dies, Christopher Tolkien is going to release like the Uber Silmarillion, right? Like the new improved perfected Silmarillion, um, uh, based upon all of these things that he's now concluded and seen, um, I'd, I would love a new edition of the Silmarillion based on all these reflections that he's made in the years since. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what I would. That's what I'm. That's what I'm secretly hoping for. Okay, not much of a secret anymore now, is it? Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so that's pretty cool. One more, one more, and then we'll move on to the other stuff. 
But at length after the fall of Fingolfin, which is told hereafter, Sauron came against Oradreth, the warden of the tower, with a host of Balrogs. Sauron was the chief servant of the evil Vala, whom he had suborned to his service in Valinor from among the people of the gods. He was become a wizard of dreadful power, master of necromancy, foul in wisdom, cruel in strength, misshaping what he touched, twisting what he ruled, lord of werewolves. His dominion was torment. He took Minas Tirith by assault, the tower of Inglor upon the Isle of Syrian, for a dark cloud of fear fell upon those that defended it, and he made it a stronghold of evil and a menace, for no living creature could pass through that veil that he did not espy from the tower where he sat. How about that, right? Now, this passage is so much fun, um, because you can look at this from two totally different angles, right? And it looks completely different. On the one hand, if you look at it from the point of view of the earlier materials, right? This is completely consistent. This is straight out of the Lay of Lathian and the Quentin Ildorinwa. Straight, straight out of there, right? No new material, really, no no radically new material. We could see this stuff, right? Thu, Gorthu, who's been there before, um, uh, that, you know, this Thu, as he's described in, uh, in, in the Lay of Lathian, just like this, right? This is not new. Totally not new. And yet, if we look at it from, like, from the Lord of the Rings, looking back, it is now impossible not to recognize Sauron of Mordor, right? With the tower and the, you know, the, the, the eye, right? You know, uh, his being up in the tower and espying every, you know, his eye looking out over everywhere from the tower where he sits. The dark cloud of fear that falls on those that defend it, taking this tower and, 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 and cloaking it in fear and making it uh, a menace and a stronghold of, of evil, Right, just like Minas Morgul, right? I mean, all of this, all this stuff, right? Uh, the necromancy stuff, Nancy, absolutely. Again, that's straight out of. Uh, he's called the necromancer in uh, in 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 the Lay of Lathian. Um, he's very recognizable as the necromancer of the Hobbit, though. Again, of course, Thu from the Lay of Lathian already was that. Um, but uh, but clearly, the antagonist is there. Um, again, if you just know the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Um, and you think about the Lord of the Rings as sort of this this kind of runaway sequel of The Hobbit, you know, one might be tempted to think like, okay, so he latched onto this vague necromancer character, right? Who's a pretty fringe character in The Hobbit, you have to admit. Um, but anyway, he kind of latched onto that and said like, okay, I think I'll I'll make that guy the big bad for the sequel, right? Uh, that works. Um, and then, of course, as we study The Hobbit and we, we're reading The Lay of Lathian and we're like, well, look, see, this is the... And he even, the necromancer in The Lay of Lathian, after he gets kicked out of this, out of, 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 of Minas Tirith by Luthien and Huon, what does he do? He flees to Tarnufuin, Mirkwood, and sets himself up there in a tower, right? So, yeah, okay, there's The Hobbit necromancer. There's where it came from, right? That's where Tolkien lifted that concept and, and put it wholesale right there into The Hobbit, right? Okay, cool. But now we can see it's not at all a random choice, right? Because he's already taken this character. In parallel with The Hobbit tradition, he's already taken that character and he's made Sauron into the tempter of Numenor, right? Um, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, he's he's 
Sauron of Numenor. He's the guy who, who, who corrupts and perverts Numenor and brings about its downfall. We already have seen Sauron eleva- elevated into that position. Um, and now, coming back from that into the Quintus Silmarillion, we see this new, more fully developed concept of Sauron, which is, which is, and this is now, the fact that he's already the guy at large in the world, it's right there in the Quintus Silmarillion that after Morgoth is banished, Sauron is still around, right? And he's still hanging out and uh, his evil is still at work in the world, right? So, so there it is, right? Um, the, the decision, he doesn't just say, hmm, I need an antagonist. Okay, I think it's going to be that necromancer dude, right? The story's already there. What's new, right, is not the decision to make Sauron the, the antagonist. What's new is to make the Hobbit sequel story contiguous with the Silmarillion story, right? He already had it right there um, within the Silmarillion tradition, but it's, it's uh, standing between the published Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, pretty cool. Okay, let's... Uh, uh, I've been talking some about Christopher's editorial work. I want to look at some of that in more detail. Last time, um, uh, a couple of you were asking about the published Silmarillion. Where does the published Silmarillion text come from? Um, you know, what is what exactly is the direct source of that? In the Baron and Luthien section of the Quintus Silmarillion, we get a clear illustration of that, right? Christopher Tolkien takes a lot of time explaining in in detail exactly where he drew the material for the published Silmarillion text. Um, I hope, those of you who are interested in that, I hope enjoyed that section. I mean, it's kind of stuffy. I know it's not, you know, you can't really just get sucked into the story. He doesn't even retell the whole story, right? He just kind of gives gives highlights and does textual discussion, which might seem kind of boring, um, but I think it's really interesting, right? So let's let's stop and look at that for a second, because I think we can learn some really interesting things when we look at this uh, uh, in a little bit more detail. First, I want to look at the pattern of Tolkien's composition and see what we can learn from that. Well, hang on a second. Before we do that, one side note. Um, most of you will remember uh, over the last couple of years, I've been talking about this concept that I've called Critfic. Um, this came up in the context of Riddles in the Dark uh, when I was talking about the Peter Jackson films in specific. Um, and so I, I, I coined the term critfic as a direct parallel to the concept of fanfic. Um, but critfic, of course, is, is a sort of an alternate universe story that literary critics write or movie critics write. Um, and the concept, the, the, the term, I coined the term critfic, but I did not invent the concept. The concept is from C.S. Lewis, especially as he explains it um, in his, uh, in his, uh, his, his work, uh, 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 An Experiment in Criticism. But um, what, um, what C.S. Lewis is talking about is he's talking about a particular kind of critical laziness. So a critic is reading a work. And they want to criticize. They want to. They want to. Uh, they want to uh, to critique this particular work of literature. Um, and instead of doing a careful analysis of the text itself, they make a generalization which is based upon a guess about what was going on, sort of biographically, with the author. So, example: um, C.S. Lewis points as an illustration to. A critic who looks at a passage, like, a, say, one essay in a collection of essays is an example that he uses. So somebody produces a collection of essays, and 
a critic is reading the collection of essays and they want to say that this one of them is is bad. It's inferior to the rest of them. But instead of saying, this one is inferior and I will show you why it's inferior. I will, t- I will explain exactly what makes it worse than the other essays. Instead of doing that, because that's hard work. Instead of doing that, they go the lazy route and they say, this essay is worse than the others. Like The, the author's heart was clearly not in this, right? Um, this is a really half-hearted effort by the author. And C.S. Lewis points out, that's not analysis. That's a guess. You don't know how much work the author put into that. In fact, the, argument, the point that C.S. Lewis is making is that in his experience, usually when critics say things like that, they are completely wrong. Um, that when a critic said something just like that about one of his works, what they didn't know was that the essay in question was the one that he poured most of himself in. He says, I agree that it was the worst of them, but it certainly was not the worst because I didn't care about it. It was quite the opposite. Um, anyway, I'm bringing all this up because uh, that many of you have been talking about Critfic, and this kind of come, has come up a lot in conversations since I coined that term and started talking about that before. But sometimes when people have been talking about it, I've gotten the impression that there's there's kind of a misunderstanding out there about what Critfic is. Critfic is not drawing... When you are drawing conclusions about what the author's intention in a passage may have been, you are not necessarily indulging in Critfic. Again, it's when you're doing... When you're taking a an easy way out. When instead of looking at the text, you are speculating about, like... Um, he, he seems to be rushing here in this passage. That's a piece of critfic, right? Instead of saying, what is it about this passage of text that makes it sound like, that makes it sound rushed to you, you're just saying the author was probably, he just probably just tossed this off. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. You don't know, right? That's critfic. Um, what, what I want to be doing here is I want to be not indulging in critfic, not saying you know, let me guess what was going on with Christopher and what was going on with Tolkien. Let's like make, make assumptions about what was in their head. What we're going to be doing here is not critfic. And I want to delineate the difference because I think it's a really important one. If what you're doing is looking at the evidence and saying, what does the evidence point to? Um, what kind of, you know, often when I say things like what kind of story are we reading? Right. I'm not trying to say, let's get inside Tolkien's head. Cause we can't, we can't know for sure. Um, but we can, guess, right? Rather, we can come to reasonable conclusions about that based on the evidence that we have, right? We have to recognize that we have no idea and we might be completely wrong, but we can follow the thread that we can see in the texts that are left to us. So what I want to do here is I want to look at the pattern of Tolkien's writings and see what do they suggest? What choices can we see Tolkien, the author, making here? And what do they suggest about his train of thought and what was what was happening with him with this story, right? And then I want to look at some of Christopher's choices that he makes in his editorial practice and do the same thing. What is Christopher interested in, right? Um, where does um, where does he take things? What patterns can we see in Christopher's choices? Because that also I think is really interesting. Um, so let's uh, let's look at this. Passage. I don't know. I can imagine many people like their eyes kind of rolling upwards in the, their head as they pass out and fall asleep in this passage when he's describing all the different texts involved. Um, this is the story of the writing of the Baron and Luthien story uh, in uh, in the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, but I think that this is um, 
I think that this is really interesting. And I want to think about, think about, think about this as not, don't think about this as like memorizing the different texts and everything. Think about this as the story of Tolkien sitting down to write. Like imagine the guy who's doing this, right? And let's think about what's going on with him. What, what does this story mean to him? What, what can we see about that? If you see what I mean? So, okay. So he's going to write the story of Baron and Luthien. He starts with a rough draft A, in which the telling of the tale of Baron and Luthien was very amply conceived and soon abandoned. Right, so he starts writing the super long version of the story of Baron and Luthien in prose, but then he stops and does the Quintus Silmarillion manuscript version. Right, so he goes back and he starts doing the the, the QS manuscript version again in a very full form, but less so than in A. So it's compressed compared to his first draft. And then he abandons it again, right? And then he starts another version of the story. B, right, starts again at the beginning and goes through the whole story um, and completes it and uses that as the basis for a second version. So he's given up, he, he writes the longer version, says, no, 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 I can't do that. I'll try to do a super compressed version, which is compressed, but still pretty long. But he stops it because he's like, no, 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 this is still not good, right? So he does a, a freestanding version. And I was like, okay, 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 that's good. So now he's going to go back and rewrite, do a new version for the Quintus Silmarillion, right? Um, that's even more compressed. And this was interrupted towards the end of the tale when he sends away the 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 the, te- the manuscript to the publishers, right? So he's got he's going to put that, send that off in the mail, but he he doesn't want to lose his thread, right? So he puts that in the mail and he keeps writing. Right, he keeps writing, and that's what the C text is. An intermediate text C, taking up from this point, was continued as a substitute while the while the QS manuscript was gone, and this completed the story of Baron and Luthien, extended through the chapter of the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, and went some way into the story of Turin. Okay, and then when C becomes very rough, it was taken over by a text D, which, beginning at the course of the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Uh, extended somewhat further into the story of Turin. This was abandoned when the QS manuscript was returned in December 1937. And then in 1951, the conclusion of the tale of Baron and Luthien uh, was at last added to the QS manuscript. So, okay, what does this tell us about the Silmarillion, what the Silmarillion is? Um, I think about all the discussions we've had about this Silmarillion text, this, you know, the, the, the published or the would-be published Silmarillion version that Tolkien was writing. Can you see how this, um, how this little mini story of these manuscripts informs that narrative, right? How it helps us potentially to understand what did this text mean to Tolkien and what was he writing, right? Okay. First thing that we notice, he sits down to write the story of Baron and Luthien, and it gets completely out of control, right? Uh, he's writing it; it's a re- it's going to be it's going to be a super long version, right? Now, for those of us who have been doing this, following along from the beginning of the history of Middle Earth, this should not surprise any of us at all, right? Um, because the idea, especially Baron and Luthien, that the story of Baron and Luthien just burgeons and grows and threatens to take over and become a whole novel of its own, of course it does, right? We've seen this before. This is how the Lay of Lathian seems to have begun when it began to sort of explode and take over the alliterative Lay of the Children of Hurin, right? Um, so, um, okay, so that impulse... That seems to be a very Tolkien impulse, right? Uh, and totally unsurprising in particular that it would happen with the story of Baron and Luthien. The fact that he stops it, and stops it relatively early, right, 
and says, no, no, I've got to go back and do a more compressed version. What does this show us? This shows us that he is committed to the Quintus Silmarillion, right? He's not going to abandon it and leave because he's preparing this for publication. He's just about to send this off to the publisher. Like it's actually going in the mail, right? So he's like, no, no, must focus, must keep working on the Quintus Silmarillion model. So that we see him, this is a moment which could have been another, uh, another fork in the road, right? He could have been like, ah, forget about the whole plot summary mo- model, right? For- forget about this shortened Quinta. I'm going to go back. I'm going to do the full novel length version of Baron and Luthien. Forget about it, right? We'll just keep on. So, okay, so maybe we'll do instead the Annals, the Ambarcanta, the Thlamas, uh, and uh, the Ainu Indale, and, uh, you know, like the novel of Baron and Luthien, right? Um, but he doesn't do that. Right, so we see that he's committed to the Quintus Silmarillion concept. He goes back and tries it again, but he's still not content, still not fitting, still not short enough. Right, it's still not plot summary-ish enough. Right, so he goes back. The draft B uh, is the is the new version of it. But 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 wait a second, I got to send this to the publisher, so I got to do a fair copy of this. Right, integrate it into the Quintus Silmarillion manuscript, so I can send this off as a unified manuscript, and then he puts it in the mail. Right, and then he keeps going. What do we learn from the fact that he keeps it going, right? That he just continues, like, so stop at the bottom of one page, put it in the mail, continue at the top of another page, right? He's got he's to he's keep the thread, right? Um, he's banking on the fact that the publisher, he wants the publisher to say yes. I don't know if he's assuming he's going to say yes. I don't know if he was optimistic or pessimistic, um, you know, in, in his heart of hearts. But he's certainly planning for what if the publisher says yes. Because he knows, he knows from the earlier versions, he knows from the Quinta, he knows from the Book of Lost Tales, he's got a lot of material still left to go, right? I mean, he's, still, he's got Baron and Luthien, he's got the Battle of a Number Two, he's got the whole Turin story, he's got the whole Fall of Doriath story, he's got the whole Fall of Gondolin story, plus Arendel, right? Holy cow, so much still left to be done in the Quinta Silmarillion, right? He better keep at it. So if the publisher does come back and say, yes, I love it, when can it be done? He can be, like, still moving along, right? So, C-text, he keeps... He keeps going. Um, it it sort of peters out, and he kind of leapfrogs, goes back, and starts the Battle of Unnumbered Tears again in text D, right? And that's pretty typical, right? I sort of get to a place where I get stuck. What do I do? Mm, go back and start again, right? Um, good thing he didn't start all the way back at the way at the beginning, right? Um, Yana says if the, if the publisher had said yes, he might have finished it in his lifetime. True, Yana. But on the other hand, we probably wouldn't have the Lord of the Rings. So, you know, it's a tough trade off that, right? Um, uh, so then my favorite, oops, my favorite bit in the story. Um, in 1951, he comes back to it, right? Um, He's finished writing The Lord of the Rings. The publication of The Lord of the Rings is dubious. The publication of The Silmarillion is five times as dubious, right? But what does he do in 1951? I never did finish the story of Baron and Luthien in the Quintus Silmarillion manuscript, so he goes back and he picks it up where he left it off. Which, by the way, shocker, right, that he didn't go back and start the Quintus Silmarillion from the beginning. That's actually pretty amazing that he went back and picked up where he left off. I'm kind of impressed, actually, that he did that in 1951. Um, but it shows that he is um, It shows that he is still committed to it, right? 
and not only just committed to the general concept of the Quintus Silmarillion, but committed to the text of the Quintus Silmarillion itself. In other words, 1951. So we've been talking about how 1937, this Silmarillion material is the Silmarillion as it was in Tolkien's mind as he's writing The Lord of the Rings. So the, you know, that story is the Quintus Silmarillion for him. In 1951, it was apparently still close enough. It was still the story in 1951, such that he was going to go back and continue it right there on the Quintus Silmarillion manuscript, right? So the suggestion is that at least to some extent, at least for most of it or whatever, um, this was still the Silmarillion in Tolkien's mind when he finished writing The Lord of the Rings, which is really, really interesting. Okay, but what about Christopher? What's going on with Christopher? Um, he talks about the different choices he makes. He's got now several versions of the Baron and Luthien story, right? There's the really long version, the text A. There's the shorter version, the QS1 text and the B text. And, and then there's the C and D text, right? And, and the QS2 text. All these different versions of the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, a. Notice, this is the last one that he has, Right? Tolkien's not going to write another full version of the story of Baron and Luthien ever in the rest of his lifetime. The only other things that he's bringing in are stuff from the Grey Annals. So Tolkien is going to write some new annals after The Lord of the Rings, right? We'll get those in a later, in a later volume of the history of Middle-earth. So Tolkien's going to redo some annals, but he's not going to do a revised Baron and Luthien prose version. These prose stories here in the Quintus Silmarillion manuscripts are it the most, the latest version of Baron and Luthien that Tolkien ever wrote. So these, therefore, are the texts primarily that, Tolkien, that Christopher Tolkien is working with. But how does he choose? Which version does he put in? And he's cobbling it together, right? On what principle is he cobbling it together, right? What is he choosing? How is he choosing? What do we see? What does he show us? Okay, so look at this one. But Dairon the minstrel also loved Luthien, and he espied her meetings with Baron and betrayed them to Thingol. Now, he admitted earlier, right, as noticed earlier, Dairon was omitted from QS1. He reappears in QS2, but much later in the story. Okay, so in the latest version, Dairon is a major character in the early versions. Um, those of you with very long memories will recall that Dairon was Luthien's brother, in the Book of Lost Tales, right? So he's been a central character from the beginning of the Baron and Luthien story. Um, he becomes, in the Lay of Lathian, he becomes the sort of rival of Baron, right? Um, but, uh, but anyway, throughout, he's been a major character. In the compressed version, in the Quintus Silmarillion, Tolkien drops Dairon, at least drops his role in the early part of the story as the one who betrays Baron and it, you know, kind of, so that whole rival posture that Dairon has in this early stage, Tolkien has cut that. Christopher puts it back in for the published Silmarillion, right? It's there. This is the sentence that, uh, that he, Christopher, is quoting from the published Silmarillion and explaining, right? So Christopher, if Tolkien cut it from the later versions... What justifies you, Christopher, in going back and adding Dairon into the published Silmarillion? He says, In view, however, of a penciled note on QS1, Dairon, with a mark of insertion, I introduced this sentence derived from the Grey Annals. 
QS1 has here simply, but it came to pass that the coming of Baron became known to Thingol and he was wroth. Okay. So Christopher lays all his cards on the table here, pretty much, right? He says, Dairon wasn't there in these texts. I added him in. Why did he add him in? He added him in because there is manuscript evidence to show that Tolkien's later idea, Tolkien never rewrote this, but later on he decided, uh, no, I really should put Dairon back in there, because he put the name Dairon with a little arrow right pointing to this part. So Christopher here knows it was his father's later intention to add Dairon back. He never actually wrote it, but it was his intention. So Christopher Tolkien says, therefore, with the warrant of that marginal note, I will add Dairon back in in the published Silmarillion. So wait, where do you get the sentence? Then does Christopher Tolkien make up a sentence, right? Does he just write a passage about Dairon and say, this is what I think my father would have written? No, that's not his approach, right? The sentence itself, but Dairon the minstrel also loved Luthien, and he espied her meetings with Baron and betrayed them to Thingol, was written by Tolkien, right? Exactly, James. That sentence was available. It's in the Grey Annals written later on, after the Lord of the Rings, right? Again, we'll get to that in a future volume. Um, so he transplants that sentence out of the Grey Annals, plops it into the published Silmarillion, and that's why we don't get a full story of Dairon the Minstrel. We don't get narrative, right, of Dairon coming to Thingol and a conversation between Dairon and Thingol. We get a lot more about Dairon in the Lay of Lathian, right? But Tolkien never wrote that story in prose, at least not the modern version. There's the old... Book of Lost Tales version, but the modern version of it, this version of it, it never got written out, right? So Christopher kind of patches it together, does the best that he can. So what conclusions can we draw from here? What patterns can we see in Christopher's action? One, he seems very reluctant to invent prose himself, right? Um, he only inserted this because his father indicated, right? He, he had clear directions, right? Explicit directions from his father that Dairon was supposed to go back in here. And he didn't even make up stuff. He took it directly from the Grey Annals. So he doesn't like to make up stuff uh, of his own. And he only did it because there was clear justification. Okay, so that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, so Nick, he does seem to look for intent, uh, intent or direction from Tolkien's notes. Absolutely. If anything, Christopher Tolkien seems at times to me, and even by his own admission, to be perhaps too timid in making leaps. Right? Um, and... Uh, being perhaps even over-scrupulous in relying on uh, on the sort of explicit, expressed intentions of his father uh, towards these things. Let's look at another example. When I composed the text of the opening of chapter 19 in the Silmarillion, that's the, the Baron and Luthien chapter, I did not at all foresee the possibility of the publication of the Lay of Lathian. So this is um, so this is the, the the business about Gorlim, the hapless, right? The story of Gorlim and Gorlim's betrayal, um, because, as you will have noticed, with the he he pointed out the story of Gorlim is taken out of this version, right? It's in the Lay of Lathian. We get a long version of it in the Lay of Lathian, but it's taken out in the Quintus Silmarillion version, but it's there in the published Silmarillion, right? So where did that come from? That's the question that he's answering here. Okay, so he says, I did not at all foresee the possibility of the publication of the Lay of Lathian, and I wished to include the story of Gorlim, which is virtually excluded from the QS. The second paragraph of the chapter, from Now the Forest of Dorthonian rose southward into mountainous moors, was taken from the Grey Annals, 
and for the story of Gorlim that follows, I used the text of A in its final form, as just described. In the story of Baron's solitary life on Dorthonian, his flight south over the Mountains of Terror, and his meeting with Luthien, as far as though the time was brief, Silmarillion, page 166, the two QS versions are not in fact greatly different in length, and here I interwove some elements of the shorter version, QS2. But from the point where Thingol learns of Baron's presence in the forest, QS1 was followed to its end at the words, and Kelegorm and Kurufin said nothing, but they smiled and went from the halls. For all of this narrative is in QS2, compressed into two paragraphs. Thereafter, QS2 was followed to the end of the story. Okay, now, so now notice here. One thing that we can see again, he is very reluctant to make up his own stuff, right? He doesn't, he, he doesn't want to compose prose for the Silmarillion. Um, he, you, he's, he, so what we see in, he, here is describing how he's using three different versions of the story that Tolkien wrote, right? The A text, the super long one, the beginning of the super long version, which Tolkien didn't finish. The QS1 version, which is shorter, but he also didn't finish it. And the QS2 version, which is even shorter and is finished, right? Does tell the whole story. So he's cobbling those three together. Right? That's interesting. Um, now the question is, on what basis does he modulate from one to the other? Right? Why does he shift? So he, 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 he follows the A text in the description of the role, the story of Gorlim. Right? And then he shifts to the QS2 version, which is the longest, most complete version. I mean, if you're going to choose one to include in the published Silmarillion, it's going to be QS2. Clearly, right? This is the one that Tolkien derived from all the other manuscripts and, and completed, right, in the text. It's the one that Tolkien basically decided most fit the mode of the Silmarillion model, right? Clearly, that's the default text. But Christopher Tolkien doesn't just give us the Quintus Silmarillion 2 version in, uh, in the published Silmarillion, right? Instead, he goes back and he's like, I had to add in Gorlim, right? I just had to. Gorlim is virtually excluded from the QS, right? But I mean, we gotta have Gorlim, right? So, so I added Gorlim in. I, 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 I lifted Gorlim from the A text. And then he talks about how he shifts from QS2 to QS1, the earlier version. On what basis? What justification does he have for shifting from QS2 to QS1? I mean, you can say QS2 is the later version, right? Tolkien has rejected QS1 and replaced it with QS2. So, Christopher, how can you possibly justify just choosing a random bit out of the ta- out of the QS1 and being like, I'm just going to go back and include this, right? Instead of just giving you QS2, which you could easily argue was Tolkien's later, you know, sort of finalized, or at least at that point, finalized choice of how the narrative was supposed to go. You tell me, what principle is he using here? What's the pattern? What do these shifts have in common? Why, according to his explanation here, why is he reaching into the A text? Why is he reaching into QS1 and integrating those parts of those texts into the, and not all of it, right? Why is he doing that? Well, he's not seeking to compress it, because, in fact, by doing this, he's making it longer. The two things that those have in common, right? The two, uh, 
both of the parts, both of these places where here he's saying he deviated from the QS version are both places where the QS version was way shorter. And he's gone in and brought the longer narrative in. Right? So Christopher Tolkien has, in all of the cases that he describes here, made the text, chosen to make the text longer. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Nick. He, 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 Christopher seems to have concluded that the QS2 is too compressed. It leaves out the juicy bits, right? Um, and James, exactly. He's trying his best to tell what he thinks is the best and most complete version of the story. Notice how this is different from the previous one, right? There's no Diron with an arrow in this passage where he can say, Clearly, Dad meant to add this in. He didn't go, get to go back and do it, but I'm going to do it because it's obviously what he wanted done. You could argue, say, Christopher, you might like the Gorlim story, but your dad made the choice to cut Gorlim, right? Why are you adding it back? He's adding it back because the story of Gorlim is awesome, right? Why does he switch switch to Quenta 1, right? Because uh, the story of, like, Kelegorm and Kurufim saying nothing and smiling, right? That whole business there in Nargothrond is awesome, right? We don't want to lose that. We, we, it's like the, the pitiful two little compressed paragraphs that Tolkien included in the QS2 is, um, it's not, it doesn't do justice to it, right? So, and and several of you are saying, yeah, he totally made the right call. Oh, I agree. I'm glad he did it this way. But it's interesting, right? It involves him. He, so here he is making unilateral choices about which parts of the story, which versions of these different parts of the story are most awesome, right? And that what he is doing, he feels that part of his editorial job, right, to not just present to us his father's most, to, 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 to the farthest extent that he can, uh, the, the version of the text that his father, like, you know, his, sort of the latest best version, best according to his father, right? No, he's making his own decisions about what he thinks is the best and coolest version of the story. And if really awesome things from the story got left out because Tolkien compressed them, he's going to go back and give them to us, right? Again, I love that he did this, but that's really interesting, right? That's a really fascinating thing to see, especially since Christopher is so careful in so many places. But we see he does actually allow himself quite a bit of license here um, and is using his own judgment about what the story really needs, right? Um yeah, yeah, and and I agree. I get you know, Yana is complaining that if he was doing this, why on earth did he not? Why on earth did he cut the business about Ecthelion headbutting uh, uh, Gothmog with his pointy helmet and drowning him in the fountain? Yana, I'm with you. I want that in the published Silmarillion too. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, so we might not agree with all of his choices, right? All the stuff that he decided to leave out. And it's one of the fun things about going back and reading these earlier stuff and being like, whoa, why isn't that in the published Silmarillion? Well, I mean, on the one hand, we can count our blessings that some of this stuff did end up getting in. But again, one thing that does emerge here is we can see, um, even as he's going through and very meticulously showing how careful he was in stitching all this stuff together, um, 
Nevertheless, we can see his own creative hand at work pretty clearly, right, in him making his own decisions, which is interesting. Um, and there are some times when he did compose his own text, right? And he admits this, and he gives it to us, right? Um, look at this. I, I want to hear two examples, and I want you to tell me what's the pattern here. Um, on what principle does he choose to go back and compose a sentence when there was not a sentence available, right? Because that's a pretty extreme thing. He tries never to do that, right? Um, but there are a few examples in which he admits, that was me, I wrote that sentence. Um, what drove him to it, right? What's the principle? So for, um, so this is about uh, Inglor slash Finrod, right? Um, Felagund, let's call him Felagund because that agrees with everything. Um, Felagund dies and is buried in Tollingaurhoth, right? And then Christopher adds whose great tower he himself had built. That is written by Christopher Tolkien. J.R.R. didn't write that phrase or that, that clause, right? Okay. So he admits that that's an editorial edition. And then also in Nargothrond, Right, when uh, when when Kelegorm and Kurufin are kicked out, right, after the word comes of the death of Felagund, in that time Celebrimbor, the son of Kurufin, repudiated the deeds of his father and remained in Nargothrond. This was an editorial edition derived from a late note. Okay, so these two things... Um, Nancy's wondering, how did he end up getting called Finrod? He isn't even called Finrod in this text. No, and Nancy, he's not even called Finrod in The Lord of the Rings. The first edition of The Lord of the Rings goes by. It's not until the second edition of The Lord of the Rings that Finrod, when people say Finrod, they mean Felagund. Um, again, when when uh, when Frodo meets Gildor in Glorian, uh, and remember the Inglor, you see that? See the name there, right? Um, uh, when he meets Gildor in Glorian, and he says, we are of the house of Finrod. He still is talking about the guy, you know, the elf who shall later be named Finarfin. That still hasn't happened in the Lord of the Rings. It's going to happen later on, Nancy. We'll eventually get there and see the moment when he makes the decision to change those names. Um, but it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't happen forever. It takes a long time. Um, so again, but back to my question. What drove Christopher to add those two phrases? What's the pattern here? What do these things accomplish? Tolkien didn't include the reference to Celebrimbor because the Celebrimbor story hadn't been written yet, right? Celebrimbor is a Rings of Power story, right? Um... So in 1937, when these texts, the texts that the published Silmarillion are based on were written, Celebrimbor wasn't a thing, right? So he doesn't include Celebrimbor, of course, because he's not there, right? Um, but Christopher says there was a late note that specifies, okay, Celebrimbor was Curufin's son, and so Tolkien had this concept in there. So the second one is like the, uh, the, the, the Dairon one, Right? Where he adds this because Tolkien like worked, and it's done. It's this is not something that Tolkien worked out later, but it's kind of like this in that Tolkien Tolkien meant you know there's a note that Tolkien wrote that says 
Celebrimbor must have repudiated his father at this point, right? But it never got written, so Christopher wrote it in himself. He added it in. Added it in, right? Nick, yes, exactly. It's an explicitly a tie back to the Lord of the Rings world and the story of the Rings of Power, right? Which is why, in some ways, this sentence seems out of place in the published Silmarillion, because there are very few other connections forward like that, um, because they were all added in later, right? And many of them, and most of them, all of them, by Christopher's editorial choice, right? Um, okay, what about the first one? The first one is a really minor thing, whose great tower he himself had built. I mean... It's easy to say, why make a big deal out of that? That's nothing. My question in response to that question would be, so why do it at all? It's nothing, right? Why should he who is so, so loath to write his own prose, why would he do it? He didn't have to say that. It doesn't add anything to the plot. It doesn't bring in a detail that wasn't written until later, like the Celebrimbor thing, right? He didn't need it. Why did he do it? What does it accomplish? What could be Christopher's motivation to write that phrase? Forget that question. What does it accomplish? What does that clause accomplish? Whose great tower he himself had built. Josiah says it makes the story grander and more tragic. Yes. Yes, I agree. There's a tragedy to that, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it reminds us of the dramatic connection, yes. I think that's true. But I have to say, um, yes, James, I agree with you. James says it would be easy for someone to have overlooked that. Um, yeah. Remember Christopher's commentary on the whole Minas Tirith situation? Remember, so, like, Felagund builds it, and, you know, Ing, uh, you know uh, Inglor Felagund builds it. But then, remember, there's all that stuff about, like, okay, wait, where does Oradreth live, right? Oradreth at first is over, like, hanging out with the sons of Fanor, and then later on, in a revision, Tolkien's like, no, 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 wait, no, Oradreth is back, he's in the tower there. So, remember, Christopher Tolkien has made several comments about the fact that that story was in flux, right? What's up with Oradreth? Who's he friends with? Where is he living? How does it work? Who exactly is in the Tower of Minas Tirith? It's, um, it's all kind of uncertain, right? Um, And Tolkien's own concepts were changing. Christopher could have clarified the lot, right? He could have gone back and just been like, all right, let's carpet bomb this uh, of Beleriand and its realms chapter, (laughs) okay? Let's just, let's just, Let's just make this shorter and clearer, right? Um, because when Tolkien goes back and does these kinds of partial revisions and adds notes in the margins and things, the result is kind of messy, right? And um, not always perfectly clear. And Christopher seems to be... that. My conclusion, my guess, 
the conclusion I come to, my inductive conclusion from this uh, from this passage, and, and you know, combined with those other things, is that Christopher Tolkien, in producing the text of the published Silmarillion, was feeling a lack of confidence in the clarity of this whole situation. A lack of confidence that the text, as his father left it, in this state of flux with the shifts and everything. And he's trying, he's incorporated that and he's made it consistent so that it does tell one unit. It doesn't contradict itself anymore, which is a step forward, right? From the place where Tolkien was changing his mind in the middle of the story. So it's consistent, but it, it still doesn't hold together like super cohesively, right? So he adds this bit, right? Remember, he built this tower. You probably forgot about that. And it's way back in that other chapter, which bores everyone to tears anyway. And, um, but, you know, and so probably, like, if we really had wanted to unify this, we re- I re- really probably should have changed more stuff in order to make it clear. Like, the, all the things that you guys were talking about, the, 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 grand, the, 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 the tragic irony of this being his death place and all that stuff, Christopher seems to be very conscious of the, the significance of that and worried that the text as he has preserved it doesn't really bring that home, right? Because of the awkwardness and the shifts and the last-minute changes. So he's been faithful to the text, but it, but he feels like, again, it's, it's not... It's not... It, it might lose the coolness. So he just gives a little, little boost. Half a sentence. Just half a sentence, right? Whose great tower he himself had built. Just bang drive home that tragedy, right? Um, That's how it strikes me. Again, I don't know what was in Christopher's head, but combined with his other references and his other commentaries and things, that seems to me the picture that kind of emerges, and you can see how it fits in with both of the other two things we were looking at, right? He's got no direct warrant, right? He can't just go back and rewrite all this stuff. He won't do that. Um, But yet, he wants to preserve the awesomeness Right, he can see the coolness of this element of the story that his father wrote, and he doesn't want to. So yes, Carson, just as you're saying, he added something to try to highlight the spirit of the work, even if it meant slightly altering the letter of the text. So right, Carson, which he does as little as possible, right? Um, but given that he has perhaps sacrificed the hard-hitting awesomeness of this story by sticking to this kind of conglomerate re-edited thing that Tolkien wrote, changing his mind all the way through. Um, but he, So he indulges in one little clause in order to try to push forward that awesomeness which he perceives to be there in the story that his father ultimately ended up with. See what I mean? Um, so it's, it's fun. I, I think this is really neat. Uh, you know, this kind of game is really fun to play. Uh, the further we get in the history of Middle-earth and the closer we get to the final version of the printed Silmarillion, the more fun we can have playing these kinds of games. Okay. Uh, now we're, of course, at the end of class, but I'm totally, I'm just about there. Uh, so we're going to we're gonna finish because we have to finish because this, uh, this is pretty much it. Um, so let's look. I'm going to look slightly more briefly. I promise I'm going to go faster from here uh, at the end of the story. Okay. I want to look at two interesting endings, right? Um, I want to 
I want to get... Yana, you should probably go to sleep. It's totally okay. You, you, you'll get the recording. I don't want to keep you up. I feel guilty enough. Anyway, okay. So I want to look at two interesting endings. The ending of the story of... Uh, not, not just the ending of the whole story, so I, I, but I want to look at the endings of two stories that are included in that ending, right? Um, one, the story of Luthien and Baron, and two, the story of Eärendil and Elwing, right? Um, so let's look at the end of this. He, this is a really interesting thing. Now, um, in earlier versions of the story of Baron and Luthien, we don't get a really satisfying end of this, like the him sort of tying together the fates and the choices and everything. Um, there are alternate versions of the earlier ones, and he he doesn't seem to have in, had in his own mind a really clear version of the story. This is the clearest version of the end of the story of Baron and Luthien that we've gotten yet. And this was the choice that he decreed for Baron and Luthien. They should dwell now in Valinor until the worlds end in bliss. But in the end, Baron and Luthien must each go unto the fate appointed to their kind when all things are changed. And the mind of Iluvatar concerning men, Manway knows not. Or... They might return unto Middle-earth without certitude of joy or life. Then Luthien should become mortal, even as barren, and subject to a second death. And in the end, she should leave the earth forever, and her beauty become only a memory of song. So you see the terms of the choice? This is really fascinating, right? They've got, they can live together in bliss, like the two of them can be in Valinor until the end of the world! Right? We're not talking about, like, a short period of time here, right? The two of them can live in perpetual happiness together in Valinor until the end of the world. And that's a that's quite an offer, right? But there's a catch. And the catch is, after the end of the world, they'll have to go their separate ways. Because Baron is still mortal, right? So he's going to be given this indefinite, through-the-end-of-the-world existence. But then their fates are going to be sundered, right? Elves and men. Um, or they can both become mortal. So, I mean, really what we're getting, it seems, is they can choose the human path or they can choose the elvish path. The elvish path would be dwelling in Valinor until the end of the world, right? They can both become elves, not permanently in Baron's case, or they can both become humans permanently, Right? If they return to the world, seems like a pretty, pretty second-rate offer compared to that first one, right? You can go back to the world together, and no promise that you're going to be happy. Um, no promise you're going to live that long. Um, you're both going to become mortal, and you're both both going to die. But your fates will be alike, and you won't be parted after death. There you go, right? Those are your choices. That's a fascinating choice. Again, it's like the choice of the half-elven, pretty much, right? It's not explicitly the same. It, it doesn't work exactly the same way, but it's kind of like that, right? But ultimately, what are the terms of the choice? What are they choosing between? They're choosing between what matters now. What, what matters, happiness now or togetherness later, right? Either you're going to be ultimately parted or you're going to be happy now. You can choose one or the other. Right? You can't have both. And they choose union. They choose togetherness. Right? Um, but it's also a choice which is... Again, think about Numenor. Right? We've, remember, we've got Numenor now. 
and the desire of the Numenorians and their their invasion of the undying lands, right? Fallen Numenor is already done. Um, and so that's kind of out there, right? That's sort of in the air, lurking behind the Baron and Luthien choice to some extent. What is the choice that they make? The choices for togetherness being more important than happiness, even a happiness which is nearly perpetual. But it's also a choice of hope and faith over certitude. Guaranteed happiness, but parting later on, right? Or you don't know. And you roll the dice. You're going to be together, but who knows? Who knows if where men goes, where men go after death is a good place, right? We don't know. Manway doesn't know, right? Elves certainly don't know, right? You take your chances. That's a faith proposition, right? They're there in Valinor when this choice is given to them. They can see around them the choice that they would make, right? So it's either choose what you see, the bliss that you see, or that which you don't see. Right? It's again it's the choice of faith versus sight, right? And that to me is a, also a really interesting element of this. There's so that th- there is not only I think a choice of of togetherness, but a kind of leap of faith there in the choice of Baron and Luthien. And that to me is a fascinating element of this story. And we didn't really have that, anything like that kind of thing before. But let's uh Let's keep going. Okay, uh, and this doom they chose, that thus, whatever sorrow might lie before them, their fates might be joined, and their paths lead together beyond the confines of the world. So it was that alone of the Eldaliae, Luthien died, and left the world long ago. Yet by her have the two kindreds been joined, and she is the foremother of many, for her line is not yet extinguished, though the world is changed, and the Eldaliae honor still the children of men. And though these are grown proud and strong, and often are blind, but the elves are diminished, they cease not to haunt the paths of men, or to seek converse with those that go apart, for haply such such are descended from Luthien, whom they have lost. Remember at the beginning, he said... um, this story is the, the, the longest of the stories of the Elder Days, but one, um, and is not ended. And Christopher Tolkien in his commentary said, yeah, I cut that from the published Silmarillion and is not ended, but I totally shouldn't have cut that. That totally should have stayed in, right? Um, this is the sense in which the story of Baron and Luthien is intended, right? One other consequence of their choice. It's not just that they chose togetherness and the rest of the world be hanged, right? Um, they don't care what happens to them, they don't care what happens to the world. They just want to be together, right? Wherever they end up. Yes. But the consequence of their choice was the blessing of many, and their story continues. So Luthien is lost, right? Um, her beauty has become only a memory of song. And yet, in a different sense, Luthien is more present in the world, right? The heritage of Luthien in the world through into the modern era, right, is greater than that of any other elf. Her story isn't ended. Even though though the other elves are presumably still alive in Valinor, right, as the world hasn't ended yet, um, yet their their sort of legacy and blessing of the world is much less than Luthien's, who's gone, right? That's kind of... It's a really interesting way of framing it, thinking about it in the context of the choice of the Valar to invite the elves out of Middle-earth in the first place, and the succession of elves 
you know, of, of, of men to, to Elsra, you know, that sort of shift from the firstborn to the secondborn and the men usurping the sunlight and all that stuff, right? And the way that it kind of connects outward to all those things and really changes and qualifies the whole thing. It just, the way that he has characterized their choice here makes it into a, it's like a world-changing choice, basically. It's, it's the one thing that goes against, it like flows against the current of the fading of the elves and the separation of elves and men, right? It's, um, it gives the whole thing a massive significance that it really didn't have, even in the Quentin Older Inwa version. That's really cool. That's really interesting. How about Ayarendil? Um, okay, at while, and at whiles, when Ayarendil returning drew near again to Earth, she would fly to meet him, even as she had flown long ago when she was rescued from the sea. Then the far-sighted among the elves that dwelt most westerly in the lonely isle would see her like a white bird shining, rose-stained in the sunset, as she soared in joy to greet the coming of Vingalot to Haven. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. You'll notice, of course, the Arendel story as it's told in this version, you know, in this draft of the Quenta stuff, um, is almost exactly the published Silmarillion. I mean, you can see the published Silmarillion text is taken almost word for word from this whole section, right? Same thing with the description with the description of the War of Wrath and the debate of Mangalore and Maedros afterwards, right? It's it's this is this is clearly the published Silmarillion text, right? Some changes that he's made, but very, very few, right? This is this is pretty much it. Because this is the last time Tolkien ever wrote this, right? So, first, Eärendil. Um, it's obvious why this is the version of the Eärendil story that he's going to use, right? Because all the other versions of the Eärendil story are a mess, and he wrote multiple versions, and they contradict each other, and they're all over the place, right? The Eärendil story is like, of all the Silmarillion stories, the Eärendil story is the biggest mess of all. Right, um, Tolkien just never wrote a really definitive. This is the only thing approaching a definitive version of the Arendel story uh, that Tolkien wrote. Uh, the only uh, the the next closest thing is the poem that Bilbo sings in Rivendell. Right, um, but you'll remember those of you who did Shaping of Middle Earth and Book of Lost Tales Volume Two, you'll remember that although it was contradictory and he had different ideas and different version different you know wildly conflicting versions of the story the story of elwing and Arendil in the earlier versions was like 31 different flavors of tragedy right right you know Arendil and elwing it was, it was the baskin robbins of suffering right i mean there are lots of different versions and it went different ways but almost all of them involved like the two of them never seeing each other again and being spending the whole rest of their time that's what he was doing up there in his starship right he was going around searching for his wife in vain and not finding her right so i mean it, like the, the, that was it was it was that was a dominant thread through the earlier versions of the story Arendel gets a happy ending. Like, mostly. It's not deliriously happy, but he and Elwing are together. And that is one of the major threads of the Arendel story in this version, right? Elwing's jumping out of the boat and saying, I, whatever happens, I'm going to be with you. Notice how this picks up on the Baron and Luthien thing, right? That Elwing and, and Arendel are going to be together just like Baron and Luthien were together. Um, 
it's it's you know interesting to me that he went this this is like a trend now right that he is shifting these stories it's not that he's shifting away from sadness or tragedy i mean just ask tour and tourambar but um but there is a definite trend towards not just happy endings in general but this particular kind of happy ending this affirma- this affirmation of union and unity um especially between husbands and wives um and that's that's interesting this the fact that Arendel's story is being made a happier story i think is a really important thing in thinking about the whole atmosphere of the end of the first age stories which is so strikingly different um it's one of the things that makes it so strikingly different from before um it's now coming to a happy ending it's not this is not the final downfall of the first age which is really what it seemed like before even though we had the war of wrath and morgoth was defeated morgoth's defeat was just like the final cataclysmic event which was the ending of the like the fading of the elves and it was it was just it's part of the overall ending of that whole era and um you know the faring forth remember back in the way back in the old days with the faring forth of the elves originally the armies that went to middle earth to fight the war of wrath were doing so in rebellion against the valor the valor didn't want them to come and they were like we don't care we're going to help rescue the other elves anyway and so then they got exiled to tolarase and were not allowed to come back home all of that's gone right now. It's a it's a fully sanctioned. You know, Arendel has a happy ending. The 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 attack is fully sanctioned. Um, it's not. There's still sad elements, right? They fail to get the Silmarils and uh, and stuff. But you know, it's uh, the whole atmosphere of this is 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 changed. Um, well, we'll come back to how I think that kind of ties in with some other things uh, in a little bit. Um, another thing which I'm sure you all noticed. You you guys all noticed when we finally got the longed for that cometh at unawares, right? I refer, of course, to Elros, who's finally there in the text, not as a note, not added later on, not penciled into the margin, but actually in the text elrond finally has his brother and numenor finally has its king right we are finally able to eat our to have our cake and eat it too with elrond right yet not all the eldalier were willing to forsake the hither lands where they had long suffered and long dwelt and some lingered many an age in the west and north and especially in the western isles and in the land of lathian and among these was maglor as hath been told and with him for a while was elrond hathelven who chose as was granted to him to be among the elf kindred but elros his brother hooray, chose to abide with men and from these brethren alone the blood of the firstborn and the seed divine of valinor have come down among mankind for they were the sons of elwing dior's daughter luthien's son child of thingol and melian and erendel their sire was idril's son celebrindal the fair maid of gondolin but ever as the ages drew on and the elf folk faded upon earth they would set sail at eve from the western shores of the world as they still do until now there linger few anywhere of their lonely companies okay um uh all right um uh so first of all just notice in passing Again, the parallel between the choice of the half-elven and the choice of Baron and Luthien, which now begins to look like a deliberate parallel, right? And that itself 
pretty cool, puts that in a different context. We can see again how this is the continuation of the Baron and Luthien legacy, right? And we can see them actively kind of living it out and doing both, right? Taking both sides of that, being both kinds of blessing, uh, or rather the blessing of Baron and Luthien coming down into both strands, not just one. They chose mortality, Baron and Luthien, right? But that doesn't just mean, hey, all the elf and divine blessing is coming among men, right? Which is what was emphasized in the Baron and Luthien story. But it's also, hey, Elrond also chose the elf side, right? Um, so we can see it being kind of spread around, right? Into both sides. That's that's cool. That's kind of interesting. Um, and again, we finally get Elros, and so we can make it, uh, uh, we, can, we can make, uh, we can now make it work. We can now have this... Uh, direct connection back to Baron and Luthien be both the King of Numenor and the Captain of the Elves there uh, in uh, the north and west of Middle-earth. So, whew, finally solved that problem. Um, let's talk about the end of the world. Shall we talk about the end of the world? Um, now, let me make one thing perfectly clear. Christopher Tolkien describes how in this section Tolkien returns not to the Quenta Silmarillion, but to the Quenta Noldorinwa, the older Quenta version, and just rewrites parts of that. Right? Starting in the middle of the sentence, picking up where it left off. Right? Um, why? Why does he do that? It seems out of keeping with the rest of this stuff. Why on earth does he go back and say, eh, this Quenta Silmarillion thing I've been working on, forget it. I'll just go back to the old Quenta. On one level, it like makes no sense. Um, I don't know. Um, remember Christopher Tolkien's note? Christopher Tolkien is really worried about the Balerian stuff and the Last Alliance stuff. So remember, in the Fall of Numenor stuff, we get all those things about... Um, so in the lands that were left, they're still called Balerian because they're the remnant of the land that's drowned, and most of it's drowned, but some of it's still there, and it's still called Beleriand, and there was a king of elves there, right? And that's what led to the to the Last Alliance story back in the fall of Numenor, right? And so Christopher is really perturbed about the fact that in the Quinta, in this, in this end of the story that Tolkien writes here, um, there's no reference to Gilgalad and to the, like, setup for the... For, so, like, we get that Beleriand region, but it's... But it's um uh you know it doesn't it doesn't work right um at least he doesn't Tolkien doesn't seem to bring it in right um one thing i would say about this i can't again i can't explain this what i can say is i'm totally unshocked by this because Tolkien is actually not a very good wholesale reviser right when he takes an old text and he's going to do a revised new version of it, he almost always, he sticks pretty close to it. Um, sometimes to a fault. So even in this context where he's like, hey, it's in the context of the Quinta Silmarillion, but it's from the text of the Quinta, right? It doesn't shock me at all that he ends up writing not really in the world, like in the mode of the Quinta Silmarillion, but in the world that's much more consistent with the way the old Quinta talked, because that's like the mode he's in when he's revising that. To me, that seems kind of consistent with what we see in other places. We'll see this in the Lord of the Rings uh, when we when we get there. Um, Tolkien does not throw away a lot of stuff. 
right? He just doesn't. Um, and you can see that when he revises. So I can't explain it, but I'm not shocked to see it. I mean, once he made the decision to go back to the Quinta, he's committed, right? And he's kind of in it after that. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, so where are we taking this? Christopher Tolkien is puzzled that there are no explicit Numenor references, right? Again, what I was just talking about, right? Well, there weren't in the Quenta, and that's kind of the world that he's in now. But despite that, I think we can see changes. Okay, so so he's not he's not mentioned Numenor explicitly. He's not talked about Numenor. But remember back to when we did the fall of Numenor at the beginning of this class, and I was talking about how this necessitated a change to the ending of the first age story that he had gotten to in the Quenta, right? How it used to be a much more final apocalyptic ending. This was the end of this story, and then all, after that, the only thing we have after that is mere modernity, right? Pish. Not worth telling about, right? Um, but then with the rise of the fall... <laughs> I said the rise of the fall of Numenor. Kind of an odd expression. But with the rise and fall of Numenor in his thinking, he has that sequel, right? So it's no longer really the absolute end of these stories um, of, of, this, of this age. Can we see that reflected in this alteration of the Quenta story? I think yes, we can. Look at the, look at the battle. Look at the War of Wrath, which of course now is almost exactly the War of Wrath from the published Silmarillion. Of the march of the host of Fionwe to the north, little is said in any tale. For in his armies went none of those elves who had dwelt and suffered in the hither lands, and who made the histories of those days that are still known. And tidings of these things they learned long afterward from their kinsfolk, the light elves of Valinor. Okay. See the significance of that? In the Quenta, in the notes that we had around the Quenta, you may remember that what Fion- Remember what Fionwe does? in the War of Wrath, or before the War of Wrath, he goes about Middle-earth calling everyone to make a decision. Right? Everyone. All the elves, all the men, all the dwarves, all the animals all have to make a decision. Whose side are you on? Are you on Morgoth's side? Or are you on the side of the Valar? Right? Because we're dividing the sheep from the goats here. Right? Across the entire continent. Everybody comes down on one side or another. And there are some from both sides on, from every on both sides, right? In other words, that battle, right, where Fionwe is calling everybody, this is like a last judgment kind of moment, right? This is a, like okay, now it's time from right here. Everybody's gotta 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 go all in, right? Um, you've got to take a stand for which side you're on. That's gone now. You see what we have instead? The Noldor and the Tuer, you know, everybody who's left, not many by this time, uh, everyone who's left of Beleriand, they don't even take part. They're not even invited, right? Far from being asked to take a stand, which has massive consequences for their future destiny, they don't even know. It happens off stage, right? Um, in other words, this battle is a big deal. War of Wrath, major moment, right? Turning point, uh, we're recapturing Morgoth. Not that it isn't a big deal, but it's no longer apocalyptic. It's no, it no longer sounds like the end of the world. It's just a tolerably important episode in the story of these times, right? 
so it's closely parallel. I mean, it's 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 you know the the actual story in a sense, the bigger story hasn't really changed. But even just in a little detail like that, the fact that the uh, elves aren't even involved and and uh, we're no longer calling the you know the animals to choose sides, this no longer has the feeling of an end of the world moment, right? Even like a complete end of an epoch moment, right? Again, major turning uh, point in history, but not the end of the elder days and the beginning of modernity yet, right? But at the last, Fionwe came up out of the west, and the challenge of his trumpets filled the sky, and he summoned unto him all elves and men from Hithlam unto the east, and Beleriand was ablaze with the glory of his arms, for the sons of God were, of the gods were young and fair and terrible, and the mountains rang beneath their feet. This replaces all that business in the earlier version that we talked about, um, and even the stuff in the annals, right? About, like, the massing on the shores of Syrian and and the and the all the like the comparatively detailed tactics that we get in those other versions, um, those are all gone, and instead we get this very sort of vague but sort of poetic and stirring descriptions. Right? It says that Beleriand was ablaze with the glory of his arms. But that's not a physical description, right? It's just like a metaphor. Um, his armies were huge and it was pretty spectacular, right? It's a kind of a vague metaphor. Whereas before we had this sense of the actual scope of the battle and the battlefields and the balance of the battlefields and the locations and all that kind of thing. And one of the consequences of that the details that we were given that were given in the annals invite us to imagine the actual size of the battle, right? And the f- how big of a deal this was. Now, less so. It's a concept, right? That we're invited to imagine in a vague and general kind of way, but not specifically. Um, so this great battle happened, and it was awesome. And Morgoth is recaptured, and the Silmaril is taken, and then lost. Right, that's now the kind of story that we're telling, and it's happening off stage. It's an episode. It's an important episode, but no longer are we getting this invitation to see this is the battle to end all battles. This is a a battle the scope of which is never going to be duplicated again. This is this is the biggest, hugest. It's no longer the biggest, huge. It's a it's a big deal, but it's not nearly as big a deal as it used to be. Um, and again, in this, I can see like yeah, no, he doesn't talk about Numenor. Right? He doesn't get into the sequel. But is this a better setup for the sequel? Yeah, I, I think it is. Right, This is a major turning point, but it's a major turning point which comes before the Numenor story. Right, The fall of Numenor is also a major turning point. Right, Arguably a bigger one um, in, uh, in some sense. And yes, Brian, it's a story told by elves still in Middle-earth. Yeah, it's... Um, it, by doing it this way, he's also incorporating it more into the frame. Right of the sort of the, sort of the, the found text frame, yeah. Um, so I said this last section is very very largely what we get in the published Silmarillion. Did you notice what we don't get? Did you notice the only part of this section which just flat doesn't appear in the published Silmarillion at all? The one big bit that he just cut 
he Christopher cut, right? Almost all the rest of this, word for word, makes it in. What doesn't make it in? What do we leave out? Yes, James. Turin. Turin coming back from the dead. Oh my gosh, it's still there, right? The prophecy of Mandos, or the second prophecy of Mandos. Thus spake Mandos in prophecy, when the gods sat in judgment in Valinor, and the rumor of his words was whispering among all the elves of the West. When the world is old and the powers grow weary, then Morgoth, seeing that the guard sleepeth, shall come back through the door of night out of the timeless void, and he shall destroy the sun and moon. But Eärendil shall descend upon him as a white and searing flame, and drive him from the airs. Then shall the last battle be gathered on the fields of Valinor. In that day Tulkas shall strive with Morgoth, and on his right hand shall be Fionwe, and on his left Turin Turambar, son of Hurin, coming from the halls of Mandos, and the black sword of Turin shall deal unto Morgoth his death and final end, and so shall the children of Hurin and all men be avenged. Thereafter shall earth be broken and remade, and the Silmarils shall be recovered out of air and earth and sea, for Eärendil shall descend and surrender that flame which he hath had in keeping. Then Feanor shall take the three jewels and bear them to Yavanna Pelurian, and she will break them, and with their fire rekindle the two trees, and a great light shall come, shall come forth, and the mountains of Valinor shall be leveled, so that the light shall go out over all the world. In that light the gods shall grow young again, and the elves awake, and their dead arise, and the purpose of Iluvatar be fulfilled concerning them. But of men in that day the prophecy of Mendos does not speak, and no man it names, save Turin only, and to him a place is given among the sons of the Valar. That doesn't make the published Silmarillion, right? Um... Yeah, Nancy, the gods are getting old. Remember that even when when the sun and moon come up, remember about how it changes and everything ages more quickly, including the gods. That's from way back. That that's that's referred to back in the Book of Lost Tales. It doesn't. It this. It says even in Valinor, time begins to move and things age more quickly. But he doesn't really lean heavily on the idea that the gods are getting older. Right? That the Valar themselves are getting older. Um, and then it kind of pops up here, and it's like, whoa, okay, they get young again. That's kind of interesting. Um, so there's that, right? There's the Turin Turambar thing, which doesn't get less mind-blowing. No matter how many times I read it, it never gets less mind-blowing that Turin Turambar, with his black sword, is going to come back and kill Morgoth. Um, and thus shall Turin and Hurin and all the other men be avenged. Um, Side note. I said that uh, there's this tendency towards increased happy endings, right? And I said, well, you know, don't tell that to Turin. Wait a second. Turin gets a happy ending, right? In fact... All of the family of Hurin gets a happy ending. At least, like, because they're avenged, right? Um, Sharon asks, will the sword speak, and what is it likely to say? Yeah, Sharon, I totally would... There has to be a little speech, right, that that the black sword makes, 
uh, you know, it, it's gotta, it's gotta, it's gotta have a speech after it kills Morgoth, right? Clearly, clearly. Um, um, I, I, it's no, Nancy, I, I, I think it's a happy ending. Nancy is doubtful whether it's a happy ending. I know it is. I totally think it is. Um, first of all, first of all, Turin is still there, right? Where is Turin now? Where's Turin now? Uh, he's he's in he's in the halls of Mandos, right? Hanging out, waiting until the last day when he's going to come back and kill Morgoth, right? Um, Tolkien was more explicit about this. Remember, uh, I think it was in the shaping of Middle Earth. No, I'm sure it was in the shaping of Middle Earth class when he talked about when Tolkien talks about Turin and Neonor being cleansed with fire, right? So, like, they become, and they become radiant and like gods, right? They have a, a short-term happy ending. Like, at, well, their story ends, and it ends in happiness and peace for them over in Valinor. And they're hanging out, just waiting for the end of the world, right? And then, oh, Morgoth's back. Let's do this thing, right? And then he gets he gets to settle with them. So I can think back to Hurin defying Morgoth, Right and Morgoth sitting him in the seat and being like, you know, now I'm gonna break. Hey, who's who's gonna get the last laugh, man? Right, Huron and Turin are gonna get the last laugh. Okay, so, but there are two things that are two sort of short observations more that I will make about this. One, Christopher Tolkien cuts this, right. The Silmarillion does not end this way. Um, I will, you know, we 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 should pay attention to what is he going to ex- notice. He doesn't explain that. He doesn't make any reference to that fact at all in his commentary on this, right? Um, of course, he doesn't even really make much uh, lay much emphasis on the fact that the text here is almost exactly the text of the published Silmarillion, but he doesn't talk about why he cut this, right? So we should watch as we go through to see what we see about that. And if Christopher ever does come back and explain it, that's one thing that we'll want to see as we go through. But the other thing, remember, this is the Silmarillion as it was when the Lord of the Rings was written. The thing that occurred to me reading this this time that I never thought of before Remember those Turin references in The Lord of the Rings? There are two references. Like, Turin is named twice during The Lord of the Rings. Do you remember? When? James has one. Turin elf friend, right? When Elrond is talking to Frodo, when Frodo agrees to take the ring, and he says, if all of the greatest elf friends of old were gathered together, right? Uh, 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 Baron and Hurin and Turin, you would have a place among them, right? Um, that's one, and good, James and Matthew both have it, um, Shelob, right? That uh, Sam tries to slash Shelob's belly, and we're told that no blade uh, can can uh, slash through uh, Shelob's belly, not though the hand of Turin wields it, right? Which is clearly a reference to him stabbing Glaurung, right, uh, from underneath. 
So that's the other one, right? So, okay, so we have uh, Turin as as Slayer of Glaurung being recalled with Sam under Shelob's belly, and we have, most puzzlingly of all, uh, like that second one I can kind of get. Turin was super strong, greatest warrior of old, and, and did the whole stabbing the monster from underneath thing, so... I never had a problem with that parallel. It's 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 kind of interesting that Tolkien goes there, but um, but it never seemed weird. The Council of Elrond moment seems weird, right? I mean, as I have said before in talking about this, um, when you look at Turin's relationship with elves, you know, Tolkien's per, or not Tolkien's Turin's performance as a as a as an elf friend, it's kind of hard to say that it was really a net gain, right? I mean, he kind of brings a lot of destruction and everything. And I never thought of this until just like today and yesterday, reading through, you know, preparing for class tonight. Holy cow. This is part of the, the this, the, the Turin kills Morgoth stuff is the Silmarillion at the time of the Lord of the Rings, right? So when he's making references to Turin, when he just calls Turin, a, if we only think of the, of what made it into the published Silmarillion as the story of Turin, then no, listing him as one of the greatest of the elf friends doesn't make all that much sense. But if we include this, right? If we include the prophecy of Mandos and the knowledge that Turin is going to be avenged and be the one who's going to slay Morgoth in the end of days... Well, that increases his rankings among the, the the elf friends. Definitely does. Definitely has an impact, right? Um, the idea that Elrond, in the Council of Elrond, might very well have this passage, might have the prophecy of Mandos in mind when he says that to Frodo kind of blows my mind a little bit, right? Um, and indeed, if you think about it, the more you think about it, the more sense it makes, why Baron, Hurin, and Turin? It's not just these are the greatest of all the elf friends. Like, of all the things accomplished by all friends of elves, these are the greatest. No, they're the three most closely parallel to what Frodo himself is setting out to do. What's Frodo doing? Frodo is going himself to defy the will of the Dark Lord and bring him low, single-handedly, right? That's what Frodo is setting out to do, to be the ring bearer, to go and destroy the ring and bring Sauron down, Right? Baron cut the Silmaril from Morgoth's crown as Morgoth lay on his way. So he went with help, right? His girlfriend was a big help in this in this adventure. But anyway, Baron went, right, uh, into penetrated into the, the halls of Angband and cut the Silmaril from the crown, as we've already seen the parallels between Baron and Frodo, right? As uh, as 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 Tolkien was insisting on, right? Same eagles, same spider. Okay. Um Hurin. What did Hurin do? Hurin faced Morgoth and defied him, right? Hurin stood up to Morgoth face to face, right? He didn't, like, beat him. He didn't succeed, but not only so, he is the steadfast, right? And his will prevailed to defy the will of Morgoth even to his face and to, and to, and to, uh, to, to continue casting defiance at him no matter what happened, right? just as Frodo is going to have to do in bearing the ring to Mordor, right? So he, so Frodo is obviously parallel to Baron. 
he's parallel to Hurin in the steadfastness of his will and his opposition of the Dark Lord, even, again, in close proximity, uh, even in his land itself and on his very mountain. What about Turin? How is Frodo parallel to Turin? Frodo not going to marry any sisters that we know about, not going to, through his own folly, bring about the downfall of any kingdoms. Um, Yes, and Nancy, exactly. That's exactly the question that I would have asked. And I'm not talking distant past. Like, last week, I would have asked that question, Nancy. Why does Elrond not list two war? Tuar seems like the obvious go-to choice here, not Turin with his checkered past and questionable history, right? I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to, surely if you're going to have of humans, the greatest elf friends of all time, right? Those whose friendship with elves was closest, whose benefit to the lives of elves was greatest, Baron Hurin and Tuar, okay? Clearly, right? But exactly, Nancy, Tuar doesn't make the cut because he's not parallel to Frodo. He doesn't do what Frodo did. But Turin? Yes, inasmuch as Turin is going to be the one who's going to stand up and stab Morgoth through the heart and bring Morgoth to death, that's parallel to what Frodo's going to do with the ring. So it's not just that Frodo will be in stature like unto those elf friends. He is going to, he is setting out anyway, to accomplish a very similar kind of thing to the particular deeds that those elf friends performed. That is kind of amazing, right? That is pretty cool. Um, and so it's really... So to me, it's suddenly... Again, this was to me my big... I said, I'm, I'm ending with this because this was like my own big mind-blowing thing in reading through the... This was like, to me, the most mind-blowing thing I learned in this entire trip through the Lost Road. That There were a bunch of really cool things. This is the thing that really rocked my boat because it's totally changed the way I'm reading... The Lord of the Rings now, um, or at least certainly those passages in The Lord of the Rings. And that's really kind of amazing. But again, we can see, you see how he's headed there, right? We can see The Lord of the Rings beginning to unroll and that now when we get there, when he starts, it, it now seems like a foregone conclusion, right? When Tolkien puts this aside and he sits down to write a sequel to The Hobbit, we know where this is going to, he doesn't know where this is going to go yet, right? But we know where this is going to go. And it's not just because we've already read The Lord of the Rings. We can see it. From the Quintus Silmarillion, we can see it, right? Uh, he thinks he's going to sit down to write another Hobbit story, but we can already see better, right? Um, the path, he has already laid the path before himself, um, the path that's going to lead to Mount Doom in the Quintus Silmarillion, right? And it's just a question now of actually watching it come through. So, should the electorate choose that The Return of the Shadow is the next thing that we read, we'll begin to see that process, right? We'll see him set aside the Silmarillion and attempt to do a sequel to The Hobbit, but inevitably get drawn back into this and, uh, and allow to come out this story that has been growing within him. Um, yeah, James, he's, uh, we're going to see him, as James Lieback says, following the straight road, right? Uh, and ending up in Valinor instead of just telling a a, uh, a worldly Hobbit story. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it, James. 
Well, thanks everybody for joining me on this trip here. Uh, uh, this, uh, you know, during uh, our, our trip down the Lost Road here. Um, don't forget, we do have that. You know, this is not permanently goodbye. We do have one more class session uh, date to be announced um, on the etymologies. I don't want to leave those entirely after all that discussion we had in the Flamas about the role of the philological choices and beginning to see how that really works in Tolkien's conception. It's only fair to actually look at the etymologies and see what we can really learn from that. So we're still going to do that. I'll let you guys know as soon as I can when the date of that's going to be. In the meantime, um, two weeks from tonight, is that true? That's not true. Three weeks from tonight, um, we're going to be starting the... Um, um, yeah, through from tonight. We're going to be starting The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. I hope you'll be able to join me. Thanks for uh, uh, for making this class so much fun. I, uh, I've, uh, I, I'm just, I've been enjoying our trip through the history of Middle-earth more and more with every single volume uh, we do. So thanks very much for joining me. And I will, one place or another, I'm going to see you guys soon. So thanks very much, everybody. Bye now.